Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. And man, am I excited about this. We're finally here. Starcade 1997. Now, we're doing Starcades in a row, and I really enjoyed last week's episode, Starcade 96, with Hogan and Piper on top. But now, 97, man, we get the culmination of arguably the best storyline in WCW history. Eric, are you looking forward to this as much as I am? I really am. Now, I have to, you know, have to be honest with you and, and the listeners. I actually, over at patreon.com uh, forward slash 83 weeks, um, I, I actually watched almost the entire episode, the lead-in episode from December 22nd, 1997, the go-home show for this particular pay-per-view. And just watching that that episode, you know, for the first time since I produced it, really got me excited about doing the podcast this morning. There's a lot of good stuff to dig into, man. We're going to have fun with this. Well, let's talk about it. It's the biggest pay-per-view in WCW history. It went down on December 28th, 1997 from the MCI Center right there in Washington, D.C., and this is a departure. The last few years had been held in Nashville, Tennessee. Now we're moving on up to Washington, DC. Uh, did that feel like a bigger venue, a bigger town, a bigger event, just based on location? Of course it did. You know, the MCI centers are really, uh, it, it's a big venue. It's a cool venue. Um, compared to what we were doing. Yeah, it was a, it was a big departure. And if you remember last week, you know, you asked me about why Nashville and as we discussed, you know, we typically would book venues almost a year in advance, not because we wanted to, but because we had to. And as I mentioned last week, you know, in 96, we were just getting our, our feet underneath us. We were just beginning to turn things around. We didn't have as much confidence really in ourselves as we probably could have or should have. But by 97, you know, by the end of 96, booking venues for 97, for this event in particular, we were very confident in the direction we were going and the forecast we had in terms of business and attendance and that type of thing. So that we had a lot of confidence going into a much bigger, much more expensive venue. Well, you broke your all time gate record on the first day the tickets went on sale, which was November 15th. You sold 11,036 tickets for $389,910. All that remained were the $15 tickets, uh, which at that point Meltzer would say the building was being set up for 18,975. Uh, just a couple of days later, you were past 12,500 tickets sold and you would cross that $400,000 threshold. You were over 423 grand at that time. And the paid attendance for Starcade 97 wound up being a company record. Over 16,000 fans in attendance there, 16,052 in fact, which broke the old record, which was set earlier in the year in Boston for a Nitro. That show sold 16,025 tickets. Now, I should mention that uh, the total in the building is 17,500, which was a little shy of what Boston was set up for with more than 18,000, including the comps. 
The live gate though is staggering $543,000, the biggest in WCW history by a wide margin. The buy rate is huge. It did 1.9, which translates to around 6.85 million. It means it's the third biggest pay-per-view event of 1997, trailing only Tyson Holyfield from June of that year, which was gigantic and De La Hoya Whitaker. So when you see these numbers and stats, it really puts in perspective just how hot the WCW brand was, especially compared to the WWF. And I know we do a lot of comparing here, but they had really burned in the, been in the catbird seat for decades. It felt like, and now there's a, there's a new sheriff in town. I do want to compare the number here that we just ran through with Starcade 96, which we covered the prior week. Uh, last week, you know, that was a sellout of 8,327 fans that were paid the gates, 113,000. So a year later, you've got more than double in the building. And you've also got a gate that is more than four times as much. The pay-per-view buy rate for Starcade 96 is a 0.95. It's a 1.9 here. So we go from 2.85 million in revenue on pay-per-view to 6.85. Just unbelievable, silly numbers. And just eight days after this show, they're going to set another record. They're going to draw 23,058 fans. And this is on the January 5th Nitro, which went down at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. There's a total of more than 26,000 fans at that Nitro. Another more than half million dollar gate drawing $510,000. Eric, you guys are setting the woods on fire here, man. You've got to be feeling it. Yes, we we certainly were. And I think, you know, listening to those numbers, because I haven't looked at them or heard them or reviewed them um, probably since they happened, it is staggering. And what's interesting for me doing this now is, you know, you, you and I, you know, break these shows down and we talk about the details and what was going on behind the scenes and the politics and the numbers and all that kind of stuff. And it's always really interesting. But, you know, in reviewing not only the go-home show for Starcade 97 last night, but also in hearing you kind of lay out these numbers, it really occurs to me, now this is kind of a, you know, 2020 hindsight retrospect, obviously. You know, it's like as you describe this stuff to me, I'm watching it like a movie in my head, even though I was in it, you know, and I experienced it. Listening to you, you know, describe the growth and year over year and pay-per-view over pay-per-view and that kind of thing, it, it, it amazes me. And, and when I hear it now, I'm kind of kicking myself in the ass because if we would have been – and this kind of falls into the, you know, what would you do differently category. I wish – now that someone, myself included, would have been thinking about infrastructure, and as boring as that may sound to people listening to this podcast, what we did was so typical for really success, successful businesses that eventually flame out, is we grew so fast that we never really paid attention to developing the infrastructure we needed underneath us. That wasn't sexy. That wasn't fun. You know, that didn't make headlines. You know, nobody was really passionate about, hey, you know, let's make sure that we've, <laughs> we've got enough equipment. Let's make sure we've got enough staff. Let's make sure, you know, we were, we were looking at numbers, you know, every day, 
you know, literally a couple times a day, we'd be drilling into numbers, revenue, costs, expenses, ratings, travel, blah, 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 constantly looking at numbers. But what we didn't do well enough was we projected revenue. We projected expenses. You know, we projected all kinds of things. What we didn't do is project the need for infrastructure. And this was a classic case of a company that just grew so fast so big, so fast that they outgrew themselves. And and we did. And I think 1997 is a perfect example of that. I do want to just put these numbers in perspective. The all-time record for Jim Crockett promotions, which of course is the predecessor for the WCW we're discussing here, uh, was set at Starcade 86 at the Omni in Atlanta with Flair and Nikita on top. It drew $380,000. And the famous Ric Flair, Kerry Von Erich match from Texas stadium back in 84 drew 402,000. So this is a record for the entire lineage of, you know, obviously you could say, well, for inflation and blah, 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 but still just numbers, you know, apples to apples, uh, quite the success here. Um, clearly this is the hottest it's been, you know, the entire time you've been there, you know, and, and I think you have been pretty forthright in saying that maybe it just happened so fast that it was hard to keep up with. And and that's why I enjoy going back and, and, and talking about these shows and just sort of breaking down the business side. Um, and we're, we're talking about live gates. I guess we should mention the merchandise is just silly here, which has really found money for WCW. They never really had the merchandising capacity pre NWO that they're going to have after. And, and it's, it's a real moneymaker. Now let's look at the world war three pay-per-view from the month prior in November. Um, 139,000 is what the, the draw is there just for merchandise at that live event. Uh, the top selling t-shirts at the time, believe it or not, weren't, was not an NWO shirt. It was sting. He sold 898 shirts at that event. The NWO sold 774. DDP sold 502. That tells you how hot he is in 97, uh, six, which is the NWO shirt with a six ball on the back is 489 shirts sold. And Randy Savage sold 165. So everybody's got their share and average attendance is up. We talked about it last week, 95 relative to 96. Well, attendance 96 to 97 is up 95.6%. In December of 96, you guys are drawing on average 3,911 fans. By the end of 97, though, it's 7,649 fans. What does that mean for the gate? It grew 188%. We go from 48,000 to 138,000, and you're selling out like 83% of your live events. It's just pretty unbelievable. Uh, let's talk about the buildup to this show though, and run through some of the nitro results and some of the behind the scenes goings on, uh, on the November 17th nitro, Sean Morley got a tryout in a dark match and six or eight months later, whatever it may be, he winds up becoming Val Venus in the WWF. Uh, now Meltzer would report in the observer on December 8th that you reportedly told Sean Morley, Sean Morley. Uh, that whatever he had been offered by the WWF, you would try to match or top it. Uh, he wound up not coming to WCW. What do you think is up with that? What do you remember about the Val Venus performer, Sean Morley? Didn't even watch the match and never had a conversation with him. Again, it's just, it, it, the reporting was not true. 
Um, I never offered, <laughs> I never offered him anything. I don't think I was even aware that he was, he was in a dark match. And, and typically that was the case. I didn't spend a lot of time. I, again, you know, this is so, I hate to keep repeating myself, but I think sometimes the audience assumes, especially after 20 years of narrative and, and people telling stories, people assume that, you know, I, I, you know, oversaw every aspect of our business and was responsible for every aspect of our business. I wasn't. I was responsible for the people who were responsible for every aspect of our business in many respects. Um, and some things I did have direct oversight of, but in talent wasn't one of them. That wasn't my strength. Creative wasn't one of them. Well, it was by 1997, but you know, prior to 1996, I didn't really, um, on a day-to-day basis, oversee creative. So the people that were, and this is the case, you know, with you know a dark match. It's not like I got to the building and said, "Okay, I got to look at my list of shit to do today." Oh, okay, at four o'clock we're gonna have a dark match, or at six o'clock we're gonna have a dark match. Up, oh, better be ringside. Better make sure I watch that. That never happened. I, you know, contrary to Dave's reporting, I never had a conversation with Sean Morley. I didn't even know who Sean Morley was till I was working with him in in WWE. Well, I mean, I knew who he was after the Valvinus character, but I I had never had a conversation with him until I went to work at WWE in 2000, whatever it was. So Meltzer would report in the observer, uh, that the plan is to debut the new TBS show and it's going to be called thunder, but not Thursday thunder, because once baseball season starts in April, it's going to be moved to Wednesday. And he sort of freestyles that the Saturday morning main event and Sunday pro shows are going to be dropped. And the plan is still for the Monday show to become NWO nitro, perhaps built around a feud with Hogan's NWO with he and Savage against the Wolfpack with the members splitting and taking sides. And then the Thursday show is going to be a WCW show called WCW thunder built around Bret Hart and Lex Luger and the giant and flair and sting. Obviously we've talked about this as being a really critical part in the story. Um, but do you, re- what I wanted to circle in here is, is the timeline accurate for dropping the other shows? Was there ever consideration to calling it Thursday thunder and then having to pivot because of the fear of having to be preempted by baseball or is that just Meltzer sort of freestyling? I don't. I don't remember there being a ton of conversation about Thursday thunder or not. You know, Monday Nitro was was on Mondays, but it it got moved occasionally, uh, or at least bounced around. Um, there may have been, you know, I don't want to I don't want to call him out on that one because it, it's possible there was some discussion about it, but it wasn't like a major issue. We we knew we were going to do Thunder. We knew it was going to be on Thursdays. We knew it was going to be preempted from time to time or moved around. But this really was the beginning. And it's funny because you and I have, you know, we bounce around on these podcasts. You know, we'll do we'll do one from 1995. We'll do another one from 1997. We'll go back to 96. And, you know, we're, we're talking about all kinds of different things based on what the audience wants to talk about, which is cool. But this show, I think more, or this pay-per-view, this, this period of time in WCW, I think more clearly than any other moment that we can review really kind of demonstrates, you know, why do we bring in Bret Hart? How are we going to use Bret Hart? You know, how is that brand split going to happen? You know, it's all happening right before us and we're going to review it today. All of those elements that we've kind of touched on in previous podcasts 
all kind of needed a crossword, crossroads at this particular pay-per-view in terms of timing. So it's, and this makes this show even more fascinating to break down, really. Let's talk a little bit about the rumor and innuendo about Kevin Nash. Um, Meltzer would write, it is known that behind the scenes, Kevin Nash was trying to get the NWO show to be the Thursday show. And from a risk standpoint, it's better for his and the NWO's position. And the idea is even if the show were to bomb on a Thursday, it would be easy to explain that, well, it's up against friends and Seinfeld, and there's no track record of wrestling fans being here on Thursday. However, if you stay on Monday night, well, you've still got to contend with raw. So perceived success and maybe a built-in excuse for failure exists on a Thursday, whereas maybe not as much with an established winner like nitro on Monday. Do you remember Nash sort of campaigning for the Thursday show to be the NWO show? That is so much bullshit of, of all this go, this beats Mabel was the third man. That's how much that's where this is on the Dave Meltzer bullshit Richter scale. This just pegged the fucking needle. I, and, and, and this is why, you know, and I know that, you know, you have a certain amount of respect for Dave and, and, and maybe you even have a relationship with him. I don't know. I don't really give a shit, to be honest. I mean, I, I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean, I honestly don't care one way or the other. It doesn't affect my relationship with you. But this is an example of the kind of petty, um, paranoid, insecure worm that Dave Meltzer was while he was reporting, and maybe still is, reporting this kind of bullshit. It never fucking happened. It it only happened in Dave's paranoid, twisted little, you know, wizard of wanting to be the, the Wizard of Oz wannabe mind. It never happened. There was never discussion with him or anybody else. Number one, he wouldn't have any influence over that. None. And anybody that thinks he did, and anybody that thinks he did, I don't care who it is, that thinks that Kevin Nash could have possibly influenced that decision is smoke and crack. Number one, I I would have little choice at that point. You know that there were that was it's so it just drives me nuts. And I know, you know, I'm going off on a rant here and I don't really care. It's my podcast. It's our podcast, but please give me the liberty. When people who defend Dave, and there are many of them who do, I, you know, I get it on my social media all the time. Um, and I understand it. You know, they've been reading his stuff for a long time. They believe it. They feel like it gives them knowledge and credibility. So therefore, they, they like it and they support it. But this is an example of shit that somebody just made up in a, in a weak, insecure person at that, because only a weak, insecure person can imagine this kind of cynical, you know, machinations going on behind the scenes. It never happened. I need some more coffee. Well, let's talk about this. It's also reported that the planned announcing teams at this point. So early December, 1997 for a split show would be. Eric Bischoff, Rick Rude, and Mike Tanay on Nitro, which will be the NWO show, and Tony Schiavone, Larry Zabisco, and Bobby Heenan on the WCW Thursday show. Chat me up. 
was that the, the tentative plan? Obviously it didn't happen like that, but do you remember at one point that's what the lineup looked like? Yeah. We bounced around with a couple combinations and that was one of them. You know, we, we didn't drill down too deeply in it. Uh, it was early. We had time. Um, but that was, yeah, that was certainly one of, um, a couple of different combinations that we had talked about. Let's talk about the video game that you guys start promoting in December of 97, you know, you guys had a couple of, of WCW video games back in the day, but this one is the one that a lot of people really gravitated to. Um, what, what can you tell us about WCW nitro and then the, the end WCW NWO thunder, what kind of money did the boys make from that? You know, we've heard over the years that the WWE game used to be a big check for the boys. And now a few years ago, they were complaining that it was significantly less. I think it's up a little bit, but would this have been a substantial payday for some of the guys? I don't remember. What was the title of the, the, the video game? Well, WCW NWO thunder came out in January of 99, but the one that we're talking about here is WCW nitro, which had, um, sting and Hulk Hogan and the giant on the cover. Right. Again, going back to the difference in the two companies, the, the WWE or WWF at the time model was set up on, you know, I'll call it a revenue share, but it, essentially it was a revenue share type of formula where, you know, really, really low guarantees on, on the downside, but really, really big, uh, or, or reasonably big, I guess, big as in the eye of the beholder, um, blue chew, uh, <laughs> I had to beat you to it. Uh, but in WCW, because our guarantees were what they were compared to WWF, very, very high. Um, therefore the rev share on merchandise was low. It's just the way the company was set up, you know, going back to 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, when we had no merchandise it made no sense to offer a talent, you know, a large percentage of, of rev share on merchandise when there wasn't any to, to look at. So the company was just set up differently. So to answer your question specifically, no, it would not have been a big tip payday for the boys. Not like it would be when you compare it to the WWF, just because of the nature of the way the, the business model was set up. I'm going to get crucified for getting that wrong. So I need to correct it. The game that they're teasing here is WCW versus NWO world tour. I was like, man, that doesn't seem right. So threw it in my Google machine and I was in fact mistaken. Now let's talk a little bit about, um, Jacqueline because she makes the news that she was let go on the December 15th show because she was supposed to be attacked and left laying by Elizabeth, but then refused to do the angle and. Meltzer would say she had a lot of heat as a result. Of course, famously, they let her beat Disco Inferno and beat up on a lot of guys, despite her small stature quote. And then she refused to sell in an angle where she'd be jumped from behind. And it wouldn't be like she'd be beaten up face to face by Liz. Talk to me about this. Uh, I kind of don't even remember that happening. Uh, what was the deal? Does Meltzer have it right? And how did the firing go down? Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload 
anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame and you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at painterlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Um, number one, she didn't get fired. Number two, she might've been sent home. There might've been an issue there. This is such a minor moment in WCW history that not only can you barely remember it, neither can I. I remember there was an incident. Yeah, she got hot. Jacqueline had a temper. She was, you know, (laughs) and I don't blame her, you know, just take a look. You get an, you know, an African-American woman, you know, trying to carve her way into a business that was dominated by men primarily. The women's thing was still relatively new or I hate to say insignificant, but compared to the resources and energy that was put into, you know, all of the, the men's side of the equation, you know, if we're going to put it into, you know, t- today's context, she was fighting for a spot. She was fighting for a job. And look, when your talent, and this is where I probably deserve i guess a little heat or maybe more than that is i i could easily put myself in talent shoes from time to time it wasn't like i only looked at things from a purely dollar and cents or at least a short-term dollar and cents point of view and you know if a talent would get hot and get upset and things maybe get a little bit out of control number one i knew that you know i had agents that weren't the strongest agents in the world I've, you know, I've never been shy about calling it out. You know, Terry Taylor was, you know, not the greatest agent from time to time. You know, a lot of the people that we had working in that, you know, Mike Grass, Mike Graham was a shit disturber. He loved kind of, you know, mixing things up and getting people a little bit uneasy. It was entertaining for him. Uh, he wasn't a great agent. So whenever a situation like, you know, we're talking about here with Jacqueline would occur, it's not like I would automatically, you know, back my agents because I knew better. And if something like this happened, I would usually let it slide once and have a conversation afterwards. And if we could work it out, we worked it out. But this was really a minor I mean, this you know, this is a minor issue, and I can't. I don't want to bust Dave's balls and say he got it right or he got it wrong because honestly, I don't remember enough of the details because it was so insignificant. Do you to, remember to, to discuss it? Do you remember at a show in Buffalo uh, where, and it's a nitro, uh, Jim Kelly and Bruce Smith, a couple of Buffalo Bills, are friendly with Macho Man, and they worked out a little schmas as almost a rib on security where they don't tell anybody from security. And then these two football players jump over the rail and attack savage. Of course, the security guards have to pull them away, 
but still, uh, as a result, you guys don't go straight to shooting at the live, you know, back live because it happened during a commercial break. And as a result, Meltzer says that, um, you know, things were just getting out of control a little bit. Chat me up. Do you remember? According, according to Dave, things were out of control. So, you know, watching from the comfort of his, you know, mother's apartment in San Jose, um, he decided that, you know, things must be out of control in WCW. He's full of shit. We knew about that. It was a fun spot. It was spontaneous. Yeah, I did a lot of things that that were spontaneous and I didn't tell everybody about, none of which were dangerous or put anybody in jeopardy. But it created energy, and I believed in it. Um, that, that spot that we're talking about here, I mean, come on, it's Dave Kelly and Bruce Smith, two great guys. And they were friends with Randy and in the go home show, um, for this particular pay-per-view, uh, and, and it took place where I think that was, oh, I'm sorry. We were watching that last night and it was a clip. I'm sorry. It didn't happen on the go home show, but it was a clip that was on the go home show of Jim Kelly in, in Buffalo, Randy Savage goes over the top rail and Jim Kelly's putting forearms to him and beating the hell out of him. Jim Kelly was at the top of the NFL at that time. Jim Kelly was a massive, massive name at that time. So getting someone like Jim Kelly and Bruce Smith involved physically in WCW as much out of control as that may have appeared to Davey um, was, was a great opportunity and caused no problems. And it, it, it was just fun. Boy, <laughs> I can't you, believe he's criticizing something like that. It's funny. The reason he's criticizing is because later in the show, a fan mimicked it, jumped in the crowd and attacked Scott Hall. Rob's jumping the fans. Fans jump in the crowd all the time. He's connecting dots. How many? I watched the show. Yeah, what was the last show that we did? Well, the last pay-per-view that we did, You know, we had a fan jumping in and getting the shit kicked out of him. You know, we didn't even address it on the pay-per-view, but that kind of stuff happened all the time. It wasn't, well, not all the time. It didn't happen in every show, but it happened frequently. Cool. So let's talk cool. about <laughs> just, I'm sorry. I, just, just, I just, just get animated about, you know, it, there's enough to criticize about WCW and decisions that were made and things that did happen. There's a wealth. There's a, there is a plethora of opportunity for real constructive criticism to make shit up is cheap and lazy. And that's the only reason I get hot. Well, there's no making up that Alex Wright suffered a serious injury in his match with Prince Ikea on nitro in late November. Um, Meltzer would say, don't know all the details yet, but they thought he had some sort of brain aneurysm and was blinded in an eye for a while and sent to the hospital hooked up to IVs. What happened with Alex Wright here? You know, I, I never knew the details. It's not that I don't recall them. I never really knew the details of that. I, obviously, I knew that there was an injury and people were concerned. But beyond that, um, I, you know, I just wasn't in the day-to-day dialogue of that. Well, uh, I hate that we're, uh, I mean, I, I don't even want to say this out loud. Hogan is trying to get, do- uh, Hogan. Let me start over here. Well, you are struggling with it, aren't you? Well, cause I just know you're just going to fucking go off again. Hogan is trying to get Yokozuna in the WCW. Remember, he still has a win. He needs to get back. Problem is with New York revoking his license. He wouldn't be able to wrestle in about 20 States. All right, go ahead. Go on a rant. There's nothing to rant about. I mean, there's, there's, there's no, there there. I mean, I, 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 this is the first time I'm hearing about this. 
This is the first time I'm hearing that Hulk Hogan wanted to get Yokozuna in, in WCW. It's This is brand new headline fucking news to me. All right. I mean, that's all I can say. You know, all my right. God. I, I, I don't know. I, I should have been reading the sheets back then. I would know more about what's going on in my own company and the decisions I was making or or the direction I was going if I would have been reading Dave Meltzer's dirt sheet. Um, because clearly this is news to me. Around this same time, Lodi debuted in Raven's group and the rumor in innuendo is that he was going to originally be called skank. Um, but that got vetoed. Of course, uh, chat me up. Do you remember one of the names going down a list of possible gimmicks being skank? Seems like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's fun. I, I, I liked it. I liked it, but, um, I prevailing sense prevailing sensibilities <laughs> dominated that decision. I hope we see that on, uh, some wrestling news sites that Eric Bischoff admits to liking skanks. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we will. It'll be all over Twitter. My feed is going to be full from that, from the time this episode drops on, by the way, uh, breezy says, hello. Hey, breezy. Yeah. Breezy. That, that was the name of Sonny Ono's friend from chapel Hill. Um, so oh, referee, <laughs> he also told me, I don't know why we're going to talk about Sonny. I know here, but he also told me that once when you guys were, uh, the two Utes, as they said, and my cousin Vinny, that you answered his, his door for pizza hut and a full mink coat carrying an Uzi. That's <laughs> uh, true. And the same day you tried to throw his couch off the balcony. I did throw it off. His wife was hot. <laughs> who are you? What's going on? Full mint coats and ooze. First of all, who has a full mint coat or an Uzi? And then well, Sonny's wife, Julie had the full length mint coat and she was a big girl. I mean, she's beautiful girl. She's, but I mean, she's like my height and you know, she's athletic. I mean, she's very lean and athletic. I mean, she's absolutely gorgeous. She used to be a playboy bunny at Lake Geneva playboy club in, in Wisconsin. So, I mean, she's a, a statuesque, stunning, beautiful, beautiful woman. But, you know, since she was my height and she had this full-length full fur coat, it was kind of oversized coat anyway. Um, I don't know. Sonny and I were we were drinking. We were having all kinds of fun. And I don't know what got into me. Just Sonny and Sonny were stirring the shit. Um, I ended up in that mink coat. I think we were just jagging around doing a Miami vice comedy, comedy skit. And, um, I, I had this full length meat coat on cause it looked cool. I thought it was like a good tub. I was a white tubs from Miami vice. And, uh, and Sonny had the Uzi. He had a couple of them and they were unloaded. Okay. So I want to make that really clear, but yeah, we were screwing around and then the pizza guy showed up delivered the pizza. And I said, let me get it <laughs> wearing the big, the mint coat with the Uzi just cause I wanted to see the reaction. So yeah, it happened. He told you the truth. Unbelievable. Well, here's something I can't wait for you to shit on Uh referee, Scott Dickinson, who was taken off the road and ordered to lose 25 pounds after Scott Hall picked up his shirt and unveiled his belly on a nitro has dropped 18 pounds and should be back at work sometime in early 98. Is that real? Hall yeah. his belly off and you're like, Hey, go the fuck home and drop some weight. 
Yeah, you know, look, it wasn't that bad, but television is television, and a referee, without being critis- without being critical of anybody who's overweight, but if you're going to put yourself on TV, and unless your character requires that you're rotund or, or or overweight in any respect, you know, it's television. It's not radio. It's television. Vision is one of the operative words there, and to have a referee look out of shape or worse yet, bigger than some of the talent that are in the match was just never a good thing. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds cold and cruel, and I certainly didn't mean it to be and didn't have anything against him personally. Um, But, yeah, you're out there, you're on television. You've got to move. You've got to be quick. That's why I like Charles Robinson so much. You know, I liked him in, in WCW, and I love him in WWE. You know, he's a good referee for a lot of reasons, but one of the best, I mean, he's telegenic. He's a smaller guy, so he doesn't overshadow or diminish in any way the talent that's in the ring that are supposed to be larger-than-life characters. Um, and he's fast on his feet. He can move. He can be where he needs to be, when he needs to be. He doesn't look like a, a 300-pound, you know, seal, you know, trying to jump over a couple guys to get a three-count. So, yeah, it was true. Kill me. You just, you just get fucking more heat every week. I love you for that. Um, but, but come on. But honestly, there's nothing wrong. I'm overweight right now. I'm about 40 pounds overweight. I, I am. Uh, it's you know, a lot of people are, there's nothing, you know, I'm going to say there's nothing wrong with it for your health and longevity. It's not a great idea, but it doesn't reflect what kind of person someone is. But if you, if you want that same person to, be featured prominently on television, it's not, you know, a heat seeking request or it shouldn't be. I don't think to say, Hey, you got to look the part. And right now, you know, at 300 pounds, you don't look the part of a referee. Now, if he was in the match and he was going to tag in (laughs) great, but as a referee, I, I think you should be more on the diminutive side. Let's talk about, um, and I can't believe this is a real thing. Hulk Hogan and George Steinbrenner do a benefit for kids charities in December. And Hogan is telling the kids that behind the scenes, all the wrestlers are, are really friends and all the bad guys are actually really good guys. And this happens just a couple of weeks, maybe even a few days before the big Starcade showdown where he's this monster heel. Obviously you don't necessarily want to poo poo a good thing like raising money for kids, children's charities and things like that. However, this does feel a little out of character for Hulk Hogan, considering he's this mean, nasty heel on the way to the biggest show of all time. Not really. I mean, you can look at it that way and you you wouldn't necessarily be wrong, but there's two ways of looking at that. Number one, kayfabe was already gone. You know, Vince McMahon years prior to this, told the world it is all scripted entertainment and these guys are really just characters and they're telling stories and all of that. So it wasn't like it was breaking news. You know what I mean? Um, and so that's number one. Number two, this was one of the challenges that I had with Hulk going back to 95 when I first approached him about turning heel because Hulk knew just from being in the business as long as he had he knew he knew how much he was going to be asked to to do this type of thing the charity work the fundraisers the meet and greets 
you know, the Make-A-Wish um, opportunities, um, all of that. He knew that wasn't going to go away, and he knew he was going to be in the position of, wow, you know, I'm a hero to a lot of these young kids, but I'm playing a bad guy on TV. And that was a concern for him in 1995. And I think by this time he reconciled it and said, look, the world knows this is all scripted entertainment anyway. So I'm just, you know, if I get into a situation where I'm dealing with kids or young people or it's important that they know I'm not really the evil bastard that I play on TV, we're just going to talk about that. So he didn't break any new ground by breaking kayfabe in that respect. He was just, you know, managing his own personal issues because he knew he had a lot of influence, particularly on young kids, as he does today. You know, he's he's doing the same thing today. He was just in New York recently, you know, at an event for the March of Dimes. You know, he he, he does a lot of things for, you know, the Big Brother organization. Um, so it's, you know, just the way he had to deal with it. That's all. It wasn't really a big deal. But in early December, you come out on Nitro for an interview and say that you're not going to wrestle Zabisco unless Zabisco puts Nitro up. And so the winner is going to get Nitro for... I guess if you win the NWO and if Larry wins, it goes to WCW and later in the show, Gene Okerlund interviews JJ Dillon, who is the on-screen commissioner. And he agrees to put up nitro. So Zabisco can get this match with you. I guess my question is, why were you the right guy to be put in a match? Because a lot of people when, and they were less critical of you doing it, but not too terribly long after this, when Vince Russo finds himself in the ring, people can be very critical of this. And you're actually in the ring before the Mr. McMahon character. We know we're going to see that in April of 98. Here we are in December of 97 and, and there you are. But why was it right at the time for you to throw your hat in the ring and be on the biggest pay-per-view of the year? And why was Larry the right opponent? Well, I mean, you actually packed about three questions into that. So let me start with, you know, why, what's the difference between me doing it and Vince Russo doing it? Because I've been, and many people were very critical of Vince Russo. Number one, I had a ton of heat. I came into WCW with heat, not, not the kind of heat that I had obviously in 96 and 97, but I was always that outsider. I was always that, you know, pretty boy, Ken doll, you know, kind of puke (laughs) that everybody hated. I had legitimate heat. Um, because of who I was and how I broke into the business and where I came from um, in the real world. And I had on-camera heat by the time I got into the ring. I was a real character. You know, go. we'll, we'll cover this, you know, when we go through the pay-per-view. But look at the reaction that Larry got when he finally beat me. That's why I did it. Because I had enough heat, and arguably, if you probably look, when you measure heat, however one measures that, if you look at characters who had heat in 1997, um, I probably had as much or more heat than any other single individual in terms of people really wanting to see me get my ass kicked. So I wanted to exploit that. That's a resource. That's like money in the bank. When you have real heat – I'm not talking about Pavlov's dog heat where people just boo you because they know that's their job uh, and that's the reaction that everybody expects and are conditioned to give you. But the kind of heat where people really want to get in the ring and beat your ass, that's real heat. That's money heat. That's money in the bank. And I had a lot of it. And the idea of Larry beating me certainly wasn't to get myself over. 
it, I didn't, you know, I mean, it, th that wasn't the deal. The deal was to get Bret Hart over. The deal was to get Larry Zbysko over. And guess what? When we go back and break this episode down, I encourage people to go to the WWE Network, go to wwenetwork.com, go to the vault, look at, you know, Starkey 97, and look at the reaction that Larry and Bret Hart received at the very end of that match, the way it was laid out. That was a great investment of real heat on my part. It really and up until the finish of of Sting and Hogan, I'm pretty sure sure that that match and 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 the way it went down um, probably got a better reaction than anything other than the main event. That's the difference between what I did and what Russo did. Russo didn't have any real heat. Nobody gave two shits about Vince Russo. Vince Russo wasn't really the owner. Nobody believed for a second that he was anything but a staff member. He, he wasn't running the company. The perception that you know Vince Russo took over for Eric Bischoff is bullshit. Vince Russo reported to Bill Bush. That's another story altogether. I don't even want to get into it. I actually ran the company. So the difference between what I did and what Russo did are night and, and day. And there is no real comparison. Okay, that's number one. What was number two again? I don't remember. I think it was. <laughs> you don't recall? I think it was why was Larry the right opponent? Oh, well, that was it. That was a good. And yeah, and that's a good question. For a couple of reasons. One is Larry was excited to do it. Um, he, he, Larry and I had known each other, you know, since back in the AWA, and we were friends. And Larry was a good teacher. I had zero experience in the ring. Zero. I had never thought about it, never wanted to think about it, never thought, man, I should really start learning how to take a bump or two just in case, you know, I end up in the ring someday. That that never happened. So when the decision was made that, you know, and, and Larry was an opportunist, you know, as much as I respect Larry. And by the way, you know, referring to someone as an opportunist isn't necessarily a, a bad thing in my book. Larry saw an opportunity to put himself or to get himself put in a, in a high profile storyline and position with semi-main events at the biggest pay-per-view of the year. Larry saw that opportunity and was excited to help me stumble through a match to at least make it to the point where it wasn't horribly embarrassing and advance the story. Larry lived in Atlanta. I lived in Atlanta. I went down to the power plant with Larry probably three or four nights a week for a, a month after work to number one, lay out the match and for Larry, he had to teach me. I mean, I, like I said, I'd never taken a bump. I didn't know how to tuck my chin. I didn't know how to land. I, you know, I, my sense of timing and, and positioning in the ring, all of that was brand new to me. So Larry took the time. And again, we both lived in the same area. It was easy, easy for us to spend hours and hours and hours leading up to this match to just, you know, smooth it out as best we could. So there was a lot of reasons why. Um, and Larry, you know, he was he was a character. He was an outspoken guy against NWO, you know, much like Bobby Heenan was in a different way. So there was a lot of reasons why it was Larry. But the primary one is because he lived, you know, where I did. He, you know, I knew I could trust him. He, he, was, he really just wanted to make the match as good as it could be. And he knew he was working with somebody like me that was completely green. So that's why. So let's talk about Randy Anderson because Randy Anderson on this same episode of nitro where this challenge is made is refereeing a match between diamond Dallas page and the former Mr. Perfect. And you don't catch this on camera, but a fan throws a golf ball 
and it nails Randy Anderson in the head and he's hurt pretty bad and actually staggers to the back. And a lot of this fans throwing trash into the ring really got cranked up back at bash at the beach in 1996 when Hulk Hogan turned heel, but it became kind of common for WCW for a while for fans to throw trash into the ring and whatnot. Do you remember Randy Anderson getting hit in the head with a golf ball? And did that maybe make you rethink your approach? Because for a long time, trash in the ring was just heat. And that was a good thing. It was a great visual, but when somebody gets hurt like this, you got to probably think, I don't know if this is a great idea. Yeah. I mean, look, we didn't do anything and, you know, we never laid out a match or a scene or a moment, you know, on a night show that said, okay, this is where we're going to get the audience to throw shit. You know what I mean? It was never orchestrated even a little bit on our part. It, it happened, you know what I mean? But it was spontaneous on the part of the audience, audience side. It wasn't something that we strived for or orchestrated even subtly. So it's not that we had a lot of control of it, but to your point, we certainly didn't do enough to discourage it. And that probably goes back to, and again, you know, I, I would deserve criticism for this, um, in retrospect, but you know, when we saw all the trash dumped into the ring in July of 96 at Bash at the Beach, no one had ever seen that before. At least I hadn't, you know, guys like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and, you know, Ric Flair. I mean, a lot of them had, hadn't, if they'd ever seen it, really, they'd never seen anything like that to that extent. And if they had, it would have been decades, you know, ago at that point. So it was such a profound and robust emotional reaction. But again, go back and look at it. You know, it's, it's paper cups, you know, it's, you know, it's hot dog trays, you know, paper hot dog tray. It's all kinds of, you know, relatively safe stuff. People throwing, you know, full beers or, you know, paper cups full of Coke and all that. Who cares? That's fun. That's great TV. But unfortunately, to your point, and as we saw here, eventually it went from paper cups and half empty beers or cans of sp- or, or cups of spit or whatever, as gross as that was, that nobody got hurt over it. But eventually, you know, it, it became more dangerous. You know, I remember, you know, walking out, I think we were in, in New Jersey, Continental Airlines Arena. I, I think that's where we were, wherever it was. And I remember walking out with, with Hulk. And I always walked out, you know, probably about three feet in front of him. I came out first to the Jimi Hendrix music and I would turn around and do the bow down gimmick. And I remember once walking out to the arena and I saw, I didn't know what it was when I saw it, but just this big blur go by my face. And it it really missed me by about three inches. Well, it was a full bottle of Budweiser that somebody threw from, because the angle, I mean, it came up from the cheap seats and it was a full bottle. When it hit, it exploded. I mean, it made it sounded like a 22 going off when it hit. There was so much velocity on the damn thing. Now, if that would have hit me in the head, it would have it would have hospitalized me, no doubt about it, or worse. So, yeah, clearly the whole trash in the ring thing went from wow, this is really cool, this is really great heat. Wow, the people at home, you know, they're going to get into it because the people in the audience are going to get into it. The Elvis Presley, you know, the best part of the show is in the audience, you know, theory. Wow, this is awesome. And then it went to, oh my God, we got to be careful. You know, there was a time, I think we were in Albany, Georgia, somebody threw a D cell battery, 
you know, that's a big, heavy one. You know, the cops that have the three-foot flashlights, that's what they use, those big, heavy D-cells. They weigh about three-quarters of a pound apiece, and they're as hard as a rock. I remember, you know, somebody throwing one of those in the ring. You know, people were throwing quarters in the ring. It doesn't sound like a big deal. You know, somebody's throwing a quarter in the ring, you know, trying to hit you with a quarter. But you get enough speed on that thing, and it hits you in the face or hits you in the eye, somebody could really get hurt. So, yeah, it did get out of control. And we didn't do enough to curtail it. Um, probably early on when we should have. Let's talk about the Nitro and Buffalo the next week. Of course, we've already talked about the Buffalo Bills and their interaction, but the main event has DDP and Scott Hall. Uh, this sets an all-time gate record in Buffalo, of course, but that feels commonplace for you guys here. You're setting records everywhere you go. Page hits the diamond cutter and the NWO comes out. Uh, then a sting mannequin comes down from the ceiling and goes through the ring. And when they go to beat up the dummy, it was sting who was under the ring, who had replaced the dummy with himself. So they, I don't know. This mannequin thing is, is kind of fun, but kind of silly. I guess Hogan's making fun of the mannequin and then suddenly unmasks it, revealing that it's the real sting. And, uh, he drops a few of the guys and, and Hogan won't get in the ring. Chat me up. Whose idea was the dummy going through the ring and. And talk me through the the creative here. You know, it, it was a collaborative. Again, as I've said so many times before, there's no idea that I can think of that any one person came up with. You know what I mean? It's usually, hey, I got an idea. What if we do this? And then two or three other people chime in. And, you know, someone raised their hand and say, hey, I got an idea. Let's come to the ring with a red cup. And then somebody would say, well, yeah, but maybe, you know, a darker shade of blue would be better. Okay, great. Let's do a darker shade of blue. Well, maybe pink is good. Before you know it, you've got a, a red cup. The idea is essentially the same, but the variations on the idea change dramatically. So whose idea was it initially? Uh, I'd be lying if I said I could pinpoint one person. It was a, it was a collaborative effort. I like the, the idea of the dummy. It worked very well. In fact, it worked so well that we overdid it. I think if it would have done more, you know, because when Sting came down, look, just step back for a minute and try to understand why I thought it was a good idea. When Sting really did, the real live Sting with the pulse came down out of the ceiling, he looked like he was just hanging there. He wasn't moving around. There was no articulation of limbs or anything like that. He was literally just a big bag of Sting dropping from the ceiling until he hit the ring. And then he got active. Hang so on, hang on. When you have just said the two best lines you've ever said on the show. What's that? The real live Sting with a pulse. And later <laughs> he was just a big bag of sting. I don't even, I, I don't think we're going to beat that as far as Bischoff isms today. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that made my day continue. <laughs> no, and it's, it's not derogatory, you know, sting because he was in that harness and for safety issues, he wasn't going to come down there flailing his arms and swinging his bat and making all kinds, you know, he had to, he had to get down to the ring without, you know, getting hurt. So he did look just like a big bag of sting. And therefore, the dummy, which was a fully articulated dummy, meaning all of the artificial joints, you know, from the wrists to the elbows to the shoulders to the neck, it was anatomically about as close to a real person as you could get. And it weighed about 180 pounds. It was a heavy, heavy thing, too. So that when it landed in the ring, when he dropped it, I mean, it really looked like somebody would end up looking if they dropped from from that harness so the I, the original idea i thought it was a good idea but we did overdo it you know it was that's why i said it was probably too good of an idea because we killed it 
Well, you're, uh, you're overdoing the sellouts here the next week in Charlotte nitro, December 15th, another sellout, 9,320 fans. Independence arena is where it goes down. And there is a confrontation here with JJ Dillon and Eric Bischoff, where Bischoff is demanding that punches and kicks count. And Dylan says that submissions also have to count. I thought that, um, punches are illegal in wrestling, but whatever. Uh, we also see, yeah, but, I was, but I was, that's why I was petitioning to change it. We see a big debut here. We get, uh, Bret Hart coming out saying that it's Ric Flair country. And he talks about that. You offered him seven and a half million dollars per year and weekends off to, uh, you know, enjoy Ted's money. Chat me up here. This is Brett's official WCW debut. We've done a show on Brett. So I know we've talked about it a lot already. Why did it make sense to debut him here? Uh, what is this two nitros or the, yeah, a couple of shows before Starcade, but in Charlotte and just sort of with a promo. We were just coming off what was one of the best, arguably one of the best storylines and story arcs, arcs meeting, you know, from the beginning to the end, um, and probably decades of wrestling at the Starcade 97 event. The idea, it was always a goal of mine to be able to craft a long-term storyline. You know, one of the things when I first came into WCW, because I, I never really thought much about booking when I was in, AWA, you know, it was a monthly territory, you know, you, and, and honestly, it wasn't even really a monthly territory because the live event side of the AWA was almost non-existent by the time I started there. So most of the things that we did were primarily for television only with, with a couple minor exceptions. So I just never really thought about the length of a storyline because it wasn't in my wheelhouse in, in AWA. And when I got to WCW, it started to become more of a topic of conversation amongst everybody, my peers, the people that I worked with, because the house show business, as horrible as it was in WCW, was still a, a focus. Um, and and that's when I started learning the difference between monthly territories, weekly territories, and, and the difference in booking, the psychology and that type of thing in booking uh, a monthly territory versus a, a, a weekly. And I point that out because in my mind – especially by now in 1997, I looked at WCW as a monthly territory because we had monthly pay-per-views and every story, you know, I, I looked at thing and this is just something that I kind of learned or I, I guess evolved into is a better way of saying it. Um, when I got more involved in television and I had to be closer attention to ratings and pay-per-view buy rates and the bottom line and things like that, it, it, it occurred to me that the best way to look at our television and our pay-per-view business is as a monthly territory like the WWE was. And if you think about, you know, episode number one, episode number two, episode number three, episode number four is your go-home episode. Your, or excuse me, episode number four is actually your pay-per-view. So if your episode three is your go-home show, it's kind of like act one, act two, act three payoff is the way I started looking at things. Um and with Brett, you know, at the time he came in, we were just on the tail end of a hugely successful buildup for Sting. And I wanted to I wanted to replicate that. 
you know, and people who will criticize me for, oh, you could have used Bret Hart better. You know, that first of all, when any anytime anybody says you could have you could have used so and so better, they're reading dirt sheets. Right. They're talking like they're a booker. They're 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 positioning themselves as someone who knows really how to really orchestrate a great story and, and a build in a business that they've never been in. And I don't deny, by the way, I'm not I'm not saying I couldn't have come up with something better for Brett. I've acknowledged that so many times. It's ridiculous. Sure, I could have. So could have Brett. But it didn't happen. But I'm just sharing with you my my psychology or my philosophy at the point that we're talking about. I wanted Brett to come in. I wanted to, you know, the whole beginning of Starkey 97 from the, from the open of the show, which by the way, I thought was one of the better opens in, in a pay-per-view that we've probably ever done. Certainly up to that point. But from the minute that pay-per-view opened up, you know, it was framed with controversy. That's what I wanted it to be. I designed it to be that way. And, and I asked the, the announcers to make sure they articulated that from the very beginning of the show. The buildup going into it was all about controversy. I wanted Bret Hart to come in kind of like the third man scenario where they weren't sure whose side is he on. Is he an NWO guy? Is he a WCW guy? Is he going to call it down the middle or is he going to you know, screw Larry Zbysko for Eric Bischoff? Or is he going to screw Eric Bischoff for Larry Zbysko in WCW? Nobody knew for sure. And again, go back, watch the final moments of the match. It paid off beautifully the way we wanted it to at that time. But the reason, again, to get to your point, the reason I didn't use Brett in a match right away and put him in the ring with Ric Flair, which would have been a hot shot, easy thing to do, is because I I hoped that I was going to be able to build a long-term storyline with Bret Hart as as as, as the top dog on Thunder. That was the reason I brought Brett in. That was the reason this pay-per-view was set up the way it was set up. It was the reason why I had, you know, waited till the last minute in my match with Zbysko to reveal which side of the equation Bret Hart was going to initially at least start out on. You know, you can criticize it, and, and justifiably so, I guess, depending on who you are and what your perspective is. But I'm just sharing with you the psychology. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think most people sort of even forget that he was the referee in your match where it was going to be decided who got nitro. Uh, we just usually remember what he did in the main event. Let's talk about the main event of this nitro here though, as we're on our March to Starcade. the main event is Ric Flair and Kurt Henning, and they only go 17 seconds before the entire NWO shows up, but eventually in the big melee fans start hitting the ring. And Sting is in the rafters and the show ends with Sting charging the ring. And the show was supposed to finish with Sting laying out every member of the NWO with Scorpion death drops, except you and Hogan who would escape unscathed. But because there's so many fans jumping in the ring, you guys run out of time and Sting doesn't even make it into the ring before you guys go off the air. And when you realize the angle was blown, someone very audibly swears and the mic picks it up. And I think you realize it that the angle's blown or that someone is cursed or both because we see you sort of put your head in your hands when the camera comes back on. What do you remember about this? Not making air, the fans jumping in the ring and then somehow a swear making it over the mic. Well, the fact that somebody cussed over the mic and it made it the air is not that unusual in a live show. 
Um, you know, we had a seven second delay, obviously, and tried to catch it all, but sometimes you didn't. Um, it wasn't the first time it had happened, and probably wouldn't have been the last. So that that you know, insignificant, you know, to the point where. I, if you say it happened, I'll believe you. <laughs> I don't. It, 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 it's here's something. I don't that, recall it. Here's something that was significant. Around this time, you signed a four-year contract extension. First of all, great timing for you, right before the biggest pay-per-view when you guys were selling everything out. Feels like a hell of a time to get a contract extension. What can you tell us about your contract here? You know, it was a, it was an easy process, and I have to say. I wish I would have been more aggressive. I wish I would have been um, greedier <laughs> and more self-serving than I was. At this particular time, I probably could have written my own contract um, and just turned it in and had it signed off on. Uh, but I didn't take that route. You know, I really had. I I would I was. You've heard me say this before, man. I'm I'm loyal to a fault. And sometimes I just don't do what's in my own best interest for a variety of reasons. If, if I'm loyal to someone or something, as in this case, you know, the people that I was working for, I was so loyal to Ted and, and, and WCW and Turner Broadcasting in general, not just Ted. Uh, Cause that makes it sound like I had this great relationship with Ted and that's not really true, but I was so loyal to, you know, Bill Shaw and, and obviously Ted was part of it, but you know, even Harvey Schiller, all of the people that were above me um, that were instrumental in giving me the opportunity to get us to where we were at this point, I was, I was blindly loyal to them. And this was before the AOL Time Warner thing started, you know, manifesting and rearing its ugly head. So when my contract extension came about, it was, you know, my contract was up. I mean, believe me, Turner didn't want to lose me at this point. I was in some people's eyes within Turner Broadcasting, you know, I had the golden touch. I took this this entity that everybody was embarrassed by, that hated everybody other than Ted Turner in, in the entire executive committee, wanted nothing more than to pull the plug on WCW for reasons financial and otherwise. Uh, they were embarrassed by it. And all of a sudden now, you know, we're making headlines in Variety magazine. We're making headlines. The you know, Wall Street Journal took a, and somebody, I think it was ABC Television, took out a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal uh, during the upfront. And take a step into the weeds for a minute. The upfronts are the time of year, usually in the spring, where all of the networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, and all of the advertisers kind of meet. And the networks show all of the the advertisers what their new lineups are, what their what their new season is going to look like, hoping to secure as much advertising commitment as they possibly can for the entire next year. So it's a really, really important time in the television and the ad sales business. Probably 75 percent of the business that's done for the entire year is done during the upfront. So at least it used to be that way. I don't know what it's like now. So it's an important time of the year. And ABC felt so threatened by us that they took out a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal. And that the, the, the headline was on the ad, are you wrestling with your dollars? And then they proceeded to show how wrestling dominated probably seven out of the top ten positions in cable television. 
And what they were trying, what ABC was trying to do is convince advertisers not to spend money in WCW and on Nitro because we were outperforming them. We were over-delivering. We were a better place to be for ad dollars for advertisers than Monday Night Football. And ABC knew it, and they took out a full-page ad to try to discover it. They were trying to convince advertisers not to allocate as much of their budget as they previously had been to wrestling, and specifically to Nitro. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was a great time. And had I been a more aggressive or, or selfish person, you and I wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. Right. I'd be on, I'd be on a fucking beach throwing coconuts at tourists. And, and just, you know, live in life. But I didn't do that. You know, I didn't make that much money. The perception I think that some people had is I made millions of dollars. And I did make a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I've talked about how, you know, when I was forced out of the company in in whenever it was, 1999. Um, but it was a pay or play situation. So I wasn't terminated. They still had me under contract and they still sent me a check every two weeks. Um, they, they just, they didn't want me to go anywhere else. They just didn't want me in the office every day. So they did what's called a pay or play provision or executed the pay or play provision in my contract. And when that happened and AOL time Warner and all that, you know, the big, big thing happened with AOL, I was immediately vested, which I didn't even know. I didn't even know what vested meant. I didn't, I, I had a whole dresser drawer full of stock options. I didn't even know they had any value. It was just paper to me. And until one day when Bill Shaw called me up and said, hey, Eric, remember that time I told you I'd make you a millionaire? I said, yeah, Bill, I remember. You know, hasn't happened yet, but whatever. And he said, no, it has happened. Congratulations. You know, you're a millionaire plus. And I, I was confused. I was sitting in an Applebee's waiting for my daughter to get out of a dance class with my wife. Oh, when I'm having this conversation, I'm going, what, what's he talking about? And then he explained to me that my options were vested and my strike price, which is the, the, the price or the value of the stock on paper that it was distributed to me. You know, my average strike price was around 11 or $12 a share. And at the time of my vesting, and by the way, um, when the announcement for AOL Time Warner um, and, and the Turner merger happened, I was automatically, um, not only automatically vested, I was forced by my agreement to sell out my stock. I couldn't hold on to it. So I went home and I did the math. I got up the next morning and I'm looking at CNBC, C, CNBC and I'm going, okay, what's this stock worth? And I'm going, holy shit. I got it at $11. It's trading for 104 and I got a shit ton of it. So I did make a lot of money on that, but my salary compared to talent, I was minimal. I think when I, you know, when I first started at Turner, I started at 70 grand a year, you know, as a C-string announcer. And then when I moved to Atlanta, I think I, they bumped it up to 125. And then as executive producer, I'm up at a buck 75. And then once I got into, you know, once I went from executive producer to VP and then running the whole company, I eventually ended up somewhere around I'm guessing, if memory serves me right, my base salary was somewhere in the, I don't know, 500 range. But then I had incentives that were kind of built into it that almost, I nailed them almost every time. Um, that probably brought me up into the 650, 750 category, which is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. 
but it's not what I could have been making if I would have had a Henry Holmes, <laughs> uh, you know, negotiating my deal, especially at this time. Let's talk uh, about that. Was that was a long answer? No, I'm I'm glad you went into it. You know, a lot of guys uh, who we are friends with Bruce uh, won't talk about money at all. So it's cool when you do. Um, during this time, a lot of guys in WCW are making money outside of wrestling, but still on TV. Two of those guys are Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper. I want to touch on these names because Roddy Piper was out filming the final episode of his network run with Walker, Texas Ranger, and he's playing the part of a pro wrestler nearing retirement. And allegedly the part was actually written for Hulk Hogan. Meanwhile, Hulk Hogan turns down shadow warriors, which was going to be a weekly television series starring Hulk Hogan. That's basically going to be based on the escape from devil's Island movie. Any memories of either one of these projects? Uh, certainly not Roddy's because I wasn't involved in it. I don't know. It's true that the part was originally written for Hulk, although it could possibly have been since, um, Chuck Norris was also represented by Henry Holmes, uh, and, and obviously represented Terry or Hulk. So yeah, I, I, I could see how that possibly could have happened, but I just, I certainly wasn't involved in it. So I can't comment beyond that. Um, the shadow warriors thing. I remember that being a discussion and for whatever reason, you know, Terry wasn't big, you know, he, once he did the thunder in paradise, once he went through that experience, he realized that committing to a television series, that's a 70 hour a week job, you know, six or seven days a week. And it's, it sounds great on paper and the money's great. So it's easy to get blinded by the cash, especially if, you know, you're really young and you're just breaking it in or breaking in the business. But, you know, Terry had already gone through thunder and paradise and it was a grind. And, and by the way, Thunder in Paradise was easy. It was, you know, an hour and a half down the road. You know, he lived in Tampa. Thunder in Paradise was at the Disney MGM Studios. You know, he had a you know great place to stay on, uh, you know, on the Disney lot if he chose to, or he could drive home if he chose to. That was, the, as television goes, that was like a world-class gig because it was so easy. But he still, after the first episode or two, eh, brother not digging it brother because it's you know he was all good he was used to making you know five six seven million dollars a year you know showing up 20 minutes before a show going out there figuring out what he was going to do dropping a big leg and going home that was easy there was none of the 6 a.m call time shit going on which is what you live through when you're on a television series and you may be there till eight or ten o'clock at night so he was not excited about television series at this point Let's talk a little bit about, um, and, and we haven't really touched on this before. Um, but it is throughout the message boards and the dirt sheets. And as you like to say, the narrative that maybe with you having so many segments on TV and so many wrestlers in the back being told that they don't have time, that maybe it's a morale killer. And I know that, you know, whenever you're pushing the main event, and this is certainly, as you called it yourself, the semi main event because you know, nitro hangs in the balance. I get how, you know, this makes sense for you to have so many segments, whether it's interviews or promos or whatever, but when you're on a show three or four times, does it cross your mind that, Hey man, maybe I'm putting myself out there too much. 
I've got all these trained professionals that I'm paying a bunch of money to in the back. Maybe it is a morale killer. Did it even cross your mind at the time? Because I could see how someone could, if, if, if you were in their shoes could feel that way. That's a really, really good question, Conrad. Um, yeah, it did cross my mind to, to, to a degree. It didn't weigh heavily on me. You know, what weighed heavily on, heavily on me was what's working, what's not. What are people reacting to? What are they not reacting to? And I can understand, by the way, I'm, for, first I'm going to try to put myself in, in the shoes or the boots, if you will, <clears throat> of some of that talent that was sitting backstage watching me, watching the guy who calls the shots, putting myself on television as much as I did. I can certainly understand why that would frustrate, anger, um, demoralize someone. That's a talent because someone like me, who's not a wrestler, who, who, you know, hasn't spent three, four, five, 10, 15 years, you know, trying to break through and get that one big opportunity to be in the spotlight in many cases, um, see someone like me getting that opportunity because I was calling the shots and not, you know, someone back in a locker room who was one of those people that had been striving for that opportunity. Certainly I can understand it. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't criticize or, or judge someone for feeling that way. That that's, that's from the talent's perspective. Now I'm going to talk about from the producer's perspective, and this is going to be arrogant as fuck. And I don't care, but I was one of the best performers on the roster in terms of getting heat. If you look at some of the stuff that I did, some of those promos I did, you know, leading up to this, you know, I challenge anybody today to do as good a job as I was able to do getting heat and making people dislike me and making people want to see me get my ass kicked. There was in our company at that time, other than Ric Flair and and Randy and, and you know, maybe one or two other people, there was nobody on the mic that could get as much heat as I could. So, yeah. I can understand why talent would feel the way they felt, but if you had to measure, you know, okay, here's what we're here for. We're not here to make anybody feel good. We're here to generate dollars. And by virtue of the fact that you just ran through at the beginning of this, this podcast, you know, where we were financially and how successful we, we have become leading up to this moment. It's not that what I'm saying is, you know, ridiculous. It's a fact. I was part of that process that got us to this point as a character. So, you know, from a talent's perspective, I get it. From a producer's perspective, I think the numbers back up my, my position. No, I would agree with that. I mean, certainly what you were doing was working. Let's talk about something that maybe didn't work as well. Right before the biggest pay-per-view ever, December 22nd, and the show starts with an announcement that it's been paid for by the NWO and we get an NWO takeover with the commentary at the beginning of the second hour. And then you dismantle the entire set, taking down the nitro signage, putting up the NWO stuff. And this segment goes for a long time. When you watched it back, did you feel like this segment, this nitro set changeover went too long? It's, <laughs> it's like you were sitting next to me watching it last night on Patreon. Yeah, I was, and I didn't say it on Patreon because I was answering questions while we were watching it. So it, it, it kind of alleviated some of the pain of the length of that scene, uh, because I was distracted answering questions live on, on the stream on Patreon. But I remember thinking, you know, as I was answering questions, motherfucker, this is going, this is like, 
this should be a trilogy. I mean, we could have edited this into three separate shows. It went on and on and on, and it really lost its effectiveness as a result of that. You know, if that scene would have been half as long, you know, because there was some, there were some physical things that had to be done. You know, signs had to be taken down, you know, billboards had to be taken down and logos from the ceiling and, you know, shit ripped off the desk. It's not like we could have done that segment, you know, in a minute, 30 seconds live. But it didn't need to be whatever it was. And I'm guessing, I didn't look at the time on it, but I'm guessing that thing was 12, 14 minutes long. And nothing on television other than a great match should last more than, you know, three or four. There's this fun segment where you're doing Merry Christmas Hollywood and you're celebrating the very first edition of NWO Nitro, teasing as if you've already won and this is what it's going to look like. And these flyers fly down from the ceiling that say Merry Christmas Hollywood. And then you say you've got presents for Hulk Hogan. And you started the segment off riding your Harley down the ramp. And then I believe his name is Ellis. And I believe he's still with the WWE today. He escorts that bike back up to behind the scenes backstage off camera. And then when you throw to the present, what do you get the man who has everything? Ellis rides your bike back down and then fucking very, idiot. And then very loudly says, I drove the wrong goddamn one loud enough for the microphone to pick it up. And you're clearly <laughs> frustrated. He goes to the back, drives out a second Harley that has his face painted on it. It's the, this the NWO bike. And now this one makes sense. Uh, you also give him a giant Hummer with a hot tub in the background. Hey, get your head out of the gutter. I meant the SUV. <laughs> I knew you were going to make some kind of smart ass comment. <laughs> and, and, and then you give him a replica of the big gold belt, the WCW heavyweight title as a finger ring. And then you drop a giant banner from the ceiling, which is his old sports illustrated cover that Hogan was on the cover of. So it is a, a Hulk Hogan celebration. And the last gift that we see at the very end of the night is a box what's in the box and he opens the box and it is his own head with earrings and sunglasses and beard and the whole deal this is a this is an interesting episode take me through being in the ring and you see ellis ride the wrong fucking bike to the ring (laughs) it's funny because this has come up you brought it up to me before in different podcasts and i and i know you know, I knew when you said it, yeah, yeah, I remember that kind of happening, but I couldn't remember which event, you know, where, what storyline, you know, it's just, I couldn't connect the dots other than the fact that I knew something like that happened. So of course, watching this back last night, I went, okay, that's what Conrad's been talking about. And I looked at my face, you know, <laughs> right after, you know, I did. I rode the bike out. And, you know, I love that Harley, by the way. It was a cool bike. It was built for me by a guy by the name of Vinnie Bergman, um, who was one of the biggest uh, custom motorcycle builders on the West Coast, probably around this time. This is before Jesse James hit it big and a lot of guys like that. So Vinnie built this bike for me as a prototype. Um, so there was it was a one-off bike. There was no, not another one like it. And it was cool. And then I... You know, Hulk Hogan had given me a Harley. I think in 1995, he gave me a Harley for Christmas. And I thought, by 1997, now I could actually return the favor. 
you know. And I mean, he really gave it to me. It wasn't a prop. It wasn't part of a storyline. It wasn't even on television. He just had it shipped to my house, you know, day before Christmas as a surprise, actually. And I thought, wow, now I'm in a position where I can I can do something nice for Hulk. So I actually bought the bike for him and had it built um, out of my own money. So it was a legit deal. And I was excited, you know, number one, I was excited because I thought it would make great TV, you know, me kissing Hogan's ass because that was, you know, that's why I had heat, right? That's why everybody hated my guts. Well, they still, you know, will bust my balls for being a Hulk Hogan ass kisser because of a lot of things that I did back then and on screen and off. So I was so excited because he hadn't seen the bike, right? I didn't want him to see it. So they drove the bike out there, and it was my bike. And I, I saw myself last night looking out there, like, "You fucking kidding me? Uh, is this a, is this a is this a rib on me? You know, did, did Hogan actually see his bike and decide to fuck with me and have and have Ellis drive my? I mean, a million things went through my mind in a in a matter of seconds, and I, I was pretty hot, but you know, it it recovered okay. You know, we tried to cover it up with commentary as best we could. Um, but there was nothing I could do about it. You know, talk about being helpless. That's one of the great things about live TV, man. You're flying without a net. Just kind of improv. The, uh, the head that he has presented to himself, um, at the end of the show, obviously it's a present from sting. It's made by Andre Freitas at AFX studios. Whose idea was for him to open a present and it be his own head in the box. That I think came up between Craig Leathers and I, um, that was an, you know, it wasn't part of a booking committee conversation or anything like that. You know, Craig was as a director, Craig was pretty, I met with him on a regular basis, if not daily, pretty close to it. Um, because it was important that he knew exactly what we were going to be doing the following week. So if we needed any collateral materials, you know, video or otherwise, any packages, you know, he needed as much heads up, no pun intended, as he could get to be ready for the live show. So I was in a regular kind of conversation with Craig creatively about what we decided we were going to do. And I think Craig actually brought up the idea, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you, know, you just surprise the hell after this big celebration and giving them all the stuff and, you know, the stretch limo with a hot tub and candle chandeliers and hookers in the back. Wouldn't it be really cool if, you know, he got a present, he thought it was from you, but it was from Sting and you freaked him the fuck out. Went, wow, that's great. That's a really, really cool beat in in that story. So I'd 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 tip that one to Craig Leathers. So let's talk about um you know, I guess we should mention the last hour of Raw actually beat the last hour of Nitro by two tenths of a rating point. And that's probably the first time that it happened. And I think a lot of that is probably because of the amount of time that the changeover of the set was taking place because it wasn't the most riveting TV. You had to imagine some people were changing the channels there, right? Oh my God. I just, oh yeah. I mean, even to this day, it, it bothers me that, you know, that went as long, as long as it did. Cause I, I, I have no idea. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'm not, I don't hoard that kind of shit. And I'm not going to lie and pretend I do, but I can imagine that we lost probably 50% of our audience during that segment. I mean, I wouldn't have watched it, you know, let me ask you, it lost its momentum after about a minute and a half or two minutes. You knew, I mean, we started the show talking about, well, just what a huge amount of business that this Starcade show is going to do. It just sets all kinds of records for you. 
But in hindsight, do you think had this go home episode of Nitro been handled a little differently, maybe you could have done even better? Or do you think by this point, because this card and especially your main event had been set for so long that everybody who was going to buy it had made the decision they were going to buy it long before that Monday? Yeah, I mean... I don't know what the breakdowns really were. You know, there was a lot of anecdotal information that we were kind of living off of because we would get research and data occasionally from DirecTV and the other pay-per-view providers. But generally, you know, we were operating under the premise that, you know, 85 or 95 percent of the people that purchase a pay-per-view make that decision probably two or three weeks in advance. You know, people generally didn't buy a pay-per-view or make a decision on whether or not to buy a pay-per-view based on the most recent episode. You could you you could do things to to try to enhance it. You could do things to build buzz and anticipation. You know, you always wanted your go-home show to end as hot as it possibly could end. And that was really it, by the way. It wasn't, you know, the entire episode has to be, you know, the best it could be possibly be because you can you can't you can't sustain that you know if you put that much energy into your go home show to make it absolutely every segment riveting driving blah 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 blah, blah. what are you going to do with the pay-per-view how are you going to keep topping yourself you know if if it's like going to a movie and you know having a director produce a movie movie where you know every scene in that movie is as exciting as the climax or the ending of the movie I don't want to lead you into a Bluetooth commercial right now, but <laughs> that was good, Conrad. Come on. You got to admit. No, listen, you, your transitions. I mean, you, from when we first started doing this to now, you're basically a professional radio, uh, tra- shill. I mean, you got it down pat. You're better than I am. No, come on. Nobody's better than you are. Nobody's better than Conrad. But my point is, if you go to a movie expecting that every scene that you're going to see is going to be as big or bigger than the the end of the movie, you know, it's crazy, right? So our goal was to make sure, as best we could, we didn't always do a very good job. In fact, rarely did we do what I would consider now, by my standards today, even a reasonably good job of setting up the pay-per-view and the go-home shows. It's one things that I've one of the things I've realized after doing this podcast with you and watching, not only watching the pay per views back, but watching some of the go home shows leading up to them. We could have done such a better job than we did, but again, at that time, in that moment, in the context of the moment, my goal was to open up my shows hot, and I did this. I had the same formula for pay per views, and you've seen it over the last couple. That's why I always opened up with cruiserweights because I, I wanted to open the show hot. I wanted a good transition at the nine o'clock hour of the crossover, and I wanted a really hot finish that would get people talking at the end. If I could walk away from a go-home show checking those three boxes, I felt really good about it, which is probably why I didn't pay as much of attention as I should have to the length of this segment. We should have blocked it. We should have done whatever we needed to do to take that from a 12 or 17 or 20 minute segment, whatever it was, and and reduce it by at least 50%. But I didn't. Now, that being said, do I think it affected the buy rate in any measurable, meaningful way? I, I really don't, because the show still ended hot. And yeah, WWE beat us by two-tenths of a point, which, by the way, is not even, that wouldn't even qualify as a rounding error in in, in an analysis of what television ratings really mean, especially in a quarter-hour you know, kind of analysis, but it did. But honestly, I can't, 
I can't accept any argument that would suggest if we just would have short, shortened up one segment of the show, it would have had a measurable impact on the, on the pay-per-view that followed. Let's get to Starcade. Your opening match is a hell of a match. It only gets two and three quarters in the uh, star rating in the observer, but Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko, man, I wish every pay-per-view still started that way. Meltzer would say this was the best match on the show, but well below the standard you'd expect from these two. Uh, and I think a lot of this is probably because, and I could be wrong. This crowd is here for the main event. They're here for Hogan sting. And it's probably hard to get them behind, uh, you know, a, a, a cruiserweight title match. And it, it is different from a traditional show in that regard, because it felt like Starcade 97 people were really counting the days down to see the payoff of this sting Hogan match. What'd you think of this Eddie Dean Malenko opener? You know, I, I agree with Dave, uh, to a certain degree. I thought the match was, was, was a great match. I don't think it was one of the better ones. Um, I, I don't think it was the best match on the card. You know, we'll talk about Kurt heading and DDP a little bit later, but the one thing that I did notice in watching the match back is for an Eddie and Dean match, it was a slower paced match. And again, one of the things I love about doing this show with you and, and, you know, kind of being forced and not against my will, but being motivated to go back and look at some of this stuff is the way I look at it now and the way I looked at it then. And I think for me now, because certainly I wasn't, you know, I didn't even get involved in matches. I didn't tell people or suggest or even pay attention to how matches were laid out. I left that to other people who were more experienced than me. But today I would have sat down with these guys and had a conversation about, you know, okay, here, here's who you guys are as characters. Here's what the audience expectation is of you guys as characters in this cruiserweight world, which is, you know, an extremely important part of who WCW is right now and who, and the success that Nitro has experienced is because of you, Dean and you, Eddie, and here's what this match needs to, to be. And instead of it being however long it was, I didn't look at the time on it, but it was a long segment. It was a good 12, 14 minutes minimum, um, maybe more. Eddie and Dean should have had a faster pace match that looked more cruiserweight-ish than this one did. It was a great match, don't get me wrong. And I'm, I'm going to go on record right now. I'm going to start a Dean Malenko fan club here on, on 83 Weeks because every time I go back and look at something, you know, that we're going to be talking about. And every time Dean Malenko's in it, I say to myself, damn, he, he, without question, one of the most underrated talents, you know, in WCW. And for the minimal amount of time he was in WWE. He is so good. His character is so believable from the minute he walks through a curtain. People should study. Young guys and girls coming up in the business should look at Dean Malenko and study him in, in terms of his ability as an actor, as a performer, whatever you want to call him, his ability to make you believe the minute he walks out to the ring. He creates one of my biggest bitches when I watch wrestling, and not so much when I watch it anymore, because I don't I don't watch it for the same reasons anymore. But you know, when I was writing and and especially the last few years of my career, 
you know, I used to beat people over the head. You know, Bully Ray, if we ever, if you ever interview Bully, you know, to ask him to tell you about the time in, in creative meetings at TNA when I would just beat my fists almost bloody, pounding on the table, trying to get people to understand and invest in the idea that in order for any storyline to matter, there has to be stakes that people believe. You can't just throw out gimmicks and expect people to invest in silly ass gimmicks with no meaning, no connection to a story, no connection to the characters, just a gimmick for the sake of a gimmick. It used to drive me fucking batshit. Still does. I'll get myself worked into a fucking lather here if I think about it much longer. But Dean had the amazing ability and talent that could he would walk out. And I mean, within three seconds of the camera, you know, being on Dean, he would make you believe that in his mind, those stakes were incredibly high. That match was the most important thing in his life in that particular moment. And the ability to do that, and it's subtle, you know, it's not like you, you can't overact that. You can't overproduce that. It's just you either have that natural acting ability and believability or you don't. And Dean had it in spades. He's so good at it. Eddie is Eddie. You know, we, we, we keep Eddie on a pedestal deservedly. So for so many different ways, but from a producer's perspective, just please go back and look at Dean Malenko, look at every little thing that he does, because everything that he does is not only believable, but you get the sense that to him as a performer, it's incredibly important. The most important thing, you know, in his world at that particular moment in a match. Okay, I'm done putting over Dean Malenko. Well, I'm Dean, glad. You, Dean, you can send me a box of steaks for Christmas if you want. <laughs> well, he was mad as fuck at you here because he was supposed to be off of this show. Uh, his wife, Julie, was giving birth on December 25th, and he assumed, since he had let the office know that uh, the baby was coming, that you guys were going to start advertising a different replacement match, but that doesn't happen. The original plan was supposed to be Ray Mysterio. This was the backup plan. Rather the original plan was always Dean and Eddie, but the backup plan was going to be Ray Mysterio substituting for Dean and a Mysterio Guerrero match, which would have been tremendous. Uh, we just saw it at Halloween havoc in Las Vegas and it tore the house down. However, lots of curveballs on this show, which we're going to discuss both Conan and Nash, basically no show at the last minute. And they're not here after being advertised. And in addition to that, the advertised Raven Chris Benoit match isn't going to take place because Raven is not fully recovered from his inflamed pancreas. So they feel like it's important to not have another no show. And according to the observer, you guys actually charter a jet on the very last minute for Malenko to actually make it in for the show. Talk to me. I mean, you've put over how important Malenko was and, and how much of a fan you were of his, but a jet for Malenko. Tell me how this came to be. You know, so, I mean, that's to me, that's kind of a derisive question, you know, a jet for Malenko. And I know you're not meaning to bust his balls. I know you're trying to, you know, find out why I would spend the money on someone who was not a top star. And that's a valid question, but you know, how about a jet? so that we don't have to make another, you know, substitution on a show that's already got three. That's, th th 
you know, that makes more sense. So it wasn't that, you know, Dean Malenko deserved a jet, like he was some kind of fucking rock star, Ozzy Osbourne of professional wrestling. Um, it was because, you know, we knew, and by the way, Nash didn't know show. I knew Nash wasn't going to make the show. No, we're going to been that. A, I had been in contact with him, so he wasn't really a no. A no show to me is somebody that just, without warning, without a call, without a heads up, just no shows the show. That wasn't the case. We knew that we had an issue with Conan. We knew that we had an issue with Nash. We knew that, you know, Levy was not going to be able to actually wrestle. So facing three substitutions at the biggest pay-per-view of the year justified and warranted getting Dean to the show. And, and, and I, I mean, I'm not trying to be defensive, but you have to, when you look at these things as a listener to the show, when one listens to the show and you hear, or especially if you read about it in the observer, because it doesn't give you any context. So, you know, it doesn't give you the Eric Bischoff charges a jet for Dean Malenko at the last minute. Holy shit. He's spending Ted Turner's money. ATM Eric. That's the impression that that kind of narrative provides. But if you think of, put yourself in my shoes, you know, what would have been worse you know, spending an extra probably for Dean Malenko to get to Washington, D.C. from Tampa on a private jet back in 1990, $1997, probably 15 grand, be my guess, on a, on a Lear 24 or Lear 25. Uh, is it worth 20, 15 or 20 grand to not have another substitution at the very beginning of your show? Yeah, it was. And it had nothing to do whether it was Dean Malenko or Hulk Hogan or whoever. It was we can't have another substitution. Well, I'm not arguing that at all. I just think it's cool that, um, you were trying to do whatever you could to deliver it. Um, of course, these guys have had a bunch of classic matches, both in WCW and ECW. This one probably falls short of some of those other shows. Next up on the pay-per-view though, Scott Hall comes out in street clothes and does a survey and then says that Kevin Nash, uh, won't be there. And he gives no explanation to the crowd. But earlier in the show, the announcers had said that Nash wouldn't be on the show, but they too gave no explanation. Scott Hall starts making fun of the giant who comes out without the cast on his hand. Of course, Scott attacks the giant who makes a quick comeback with a press slam, teases the choke slam, but instead drops Hall using Kevin Nash's own jackknife style powerbomb. Um, obviously we know the story. I guess we should mention here. The day before the show, WCW receives word that Kevin Nash suffered a mild heart attack at his home in Phoenix, Arizona. Nash was 39, but he had a family history of heart problems, including his father dying of a heart attack before the age of 40. So nobody was exactly clear as to the actual story, at least from the dirt sheet side, but there were other reports that say that while he may have thought it was a heart attack, it was actually just a bad case of indigestion. And Nash has gone public in saying that he was in the hospital in Arizona with an irregular heartbeat. And of course the dirt sheets, not necessarily the dirt sheets, the more cynical wrestling fans couldn't help, but freestyle that maybe he no showed because he didn't want to put the giant over set the record straight on that. Because I know that allegedly this Nash has put this out here. You called him while he's in the hospital and offer to send this same jet that you're sending around to pick up the Dean Malenko's of the world. And Nash says, dude, I'm in the hospital. My tests haven't come back yet. And of course there, he's talking about the, the nuclear die test. Chat me up. What do you remember about this? Kevin Nash, no show situation. All right. You know, to set the record straight, um, I got a call from Kevin's wife right away 
Kevin thought he was having a heart attack. It was over the holiday season. Um, there was a lot of partying going on. You know, and I'm not talking about, you know, wild ass rock and roll type parties, but, you know, Kevin had family and friends over and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Had, had a couple glasses of wine. Kevin had gone to the gym that morning um, when, when he got sick <clears throat> or was concerned that he had a heart issue. <clears throat> he had gone to the gym. Actually, it was the night before. He had gone to the gym and did a big leg workout and a heavy leg workout. Now, not to sound like a doctor, but I, I do remember a lot of this conversation. Um, when you when you do a heavy muscle workout, a heavy light body part workout like that, you break down a lot of muscle tissue. That's the idea of it. You break it down, it builds itself back up, you know, more more, more than it was before. That's how you build muscle. So Kevin had done a heavy, heavy leg workout the night before, got up that morning, <clears throat> was socializing, getting ready to go, you know, get on a plane, come to the event, and he started feeling uncomfortable. Now, you, you know, the first year lead up into this you know, is, is right on the money. You know, Kevin's father did pass away at a very young age. Kevin will tell you today, and he still talks about this. Kevin's very aware of his health and keeps himself in great shape because as of this day, I believe Kevin told me this the other day when I saw him or the last time I saw him, that if, if there was a, a Nash family reunion, he's the oldest member in his family. Um, so he's very well aware that congenital heart disease and heart failure is a is is within his DNA and he's concerned about it at the time you know we're going back to 1997 his son Tristan was probably only three years old two or three years old he had a brand new family so going back to that day you know Kevin gets up in the morning he's not feeling good and I'm not saying you know hypochondriac I'm not suggesting that at all because that's not what it, what it is Kevin's just aware right but he's not feeling good um his blood pressure was up probably because of what he was eating and drinking at the time. You know, you eat a lot of sugar, you drink, you know, enough wine and, and all that, your blood pressure is going to go up. His blood pressure went up. He was feeling uncomfortable. He had a shortness of breath. He did the right thing. He went to the, he went to the hospital. Well, when he went to the hospital, now by this time I'm talking to him. Okay. We're in conversation at this point before he finds out what's going on. And by the way, for the record, you know, once again, not to beat up on Dave Meltzer because I know the audience gets tired of even hearing it. I know that you do, but I didn't offer to send him a jet. We didn't even know if he was going to get out of the hospital. So I wasn't offering to send the same jet that I used for Dean Malenko. That's not true at all. I didn't know what was going to happen with, with Kevin at this point. So Kevin goes into the, the hospital they do a blood test. First thing they do. And the results of that blood test suggested that he had an extraordinarily high level of enzymes, enzymes that are produced when muscle materials break down and deteriorate. And that produces a certain kind of enzyme that shows up in the blood panel. So, right. And, and by the way, guess what else, you know, shows up in a blood panel when you're having a heart attack, high levels of the same enzyme. So the initial diagnosis from the hospital was that he was suffering a mild heart attack. That was that was the that was the last conversation I had with him. And at that point I didn't offer to send him a fucking jet. Now, after, you know, I don't know where the heartburn, you know, that sounds like, you know, fiction writing um and, and somebody connecting dots that didn't exist. I don't I don't even know if that was Dave's report or somebody else's, it doesn't matter. But it wasn't true. 
you know, at the, at the moment the decision was made, and I, I was in contact with Kevin all the way along, and I doubted it at first. My first when I got that first phone call, I'm not going to lie, I was you know, I was sitting in 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 Atlanta, and I'm going, oh yeah, right before Christmas, and Big Grouchy doesn't want to come to TV. It had nothing to do with doing a job for for the Giant. That's more, you know, dirty cheap bullshit. It, it's somebody who wasn't behind the scenes no, trying want, to pretend be, they were. I want to be clear. Meltzer didn't say that. That was just what, okay. That was what fans just. Oh, he must. I don't want to do a job. But Meltzer. No, no, and I, and I, I didn't mean to throw that at there because, and I said, I don't know if it was Dave's or not. Or it was dirt sheet bullshit, is what that was. It was whosoever it was, or it was fans assuming the worst because of what they read in the dirt sheets. Either way, it wasn't true. He thought he was having a heart attack, it, for good cause. Given the history, you know, the family history. When I first got that phone call, I was going off. I just, just like the fans going, oh, great, big grouchy. You know, they're coming up with an excuse why he doesn't have to leave right before Christmas. I wouldn't have wanted to go right before Christmas either. I could understand it. But within a very short period of time, we found out that it was a legitimate issue. And when I hung up with Kevin, you know, I was convinced that he had, he had suffered a heart attack, a mild heart attack. It turned out later, you know, after – you know, another blood panel or two when those enzymes went down, that it wasn't caused by the heart muscle breaking down and deteriorating. It was caused by the heavy leg workout that he had that produced the same enzyme. Man, are we all smarter now or, or what? Well, I think Hall and Nash were smarter because they managed to get a contract extension before Starcade that had them under contract till 2003. Uh, is the report that we would see here. And we know that of course, those guys are going to show up in the WWF in February of Oh two. So either way though, they got paid to sit at home for a while. Speaking of somebody who's sitting at home, Conan is not here. So he's out of the next match, which was supposed to be Conan Vincent and Scott Norton taking on the Steiner brothers and Ray trailer. Meltzer would say the match was unusually bad, uh, which I guess for a last minute replacement match, it sort of is what it is. And I want to mention that. The fill-in for Conan is Randy Savage. Talk about an upgrade. Um, ultimately, Savage gets the win with an elbow drop, and it only gets a half a star. Not the best match. It's just sort of there. It's probably not the best use of Randy Savage on a big show. Here's the behind the scenes. This is directly from The Observer. Conan called and said his girlfriend had given birth to a premature stillborn child, and he couldn't leave Mexico. This left a hole in the six man tag match and the company wanted Randy Savage to fill the spot and in negotiations to get him to fill the spot, literally a few hours before the show was going on the air had to agree to change the originally planned finish of the Steiners and Ray trailer going over to get Savage to agree. The finish was changed to where Savage got to score the pin using the elbow drop off the top on Scott Steiner. This left Scott Steiner visibly livid to the point where he had major words with Booker Terry Taylor. And they tried to alleviate him by letting him do so many big moves at the end for saves before doing the job. Although he still wasn't happy at all. Savage would only agree to replace Conan in the match. If he got the pin because it was so low on the card and he's a main eventer. He also refused to beat trailer because he considered trailer a jobber. He didn't insist on beating Scott. It could have been either Steiner, but apparently Scott, uh, or I'm sorry, Terry Taylor chose Scott because Rick is usually the Steiner brother asked to do the job. I know you're going to just ether this, but tell me how, obviously when Conan has this personal situation, you got to pivot. I get it. 
I don't think anybody can really cry foul over that particular circumstance. Macho man is the replacement. What an upgrade. Were there any negotiations at all? There were no negotiations that part. I mean, there are elements of what you laid out from Dave's reporting. There are pieces of it as those so often are with, with, you know, bullshit. You know, you, you, you find little elements of facts or truth and then you build up this big, you know, colorful narrative around it to make it sound more interesting and dramatic or, you know, fulfill your agenda, whatever that may be. So there are pieces, and this is the case here, there are pieces of the, all of this that were true. The situation with Conan, there's a there's a fact, okay? You know, was Randy in obviously a last minute, you know, solution to that? That's a fact. Now, all of a sudden, there's an entire backstage narrative in in the first person based on what was going on all around that that came from nobody. That was just Dave, you know, making shit up on the fly or freestyling, as you suggest. Here, There was no negotiation with Randy. Randy was the ultimate team player. Randy was never the guy. I want to dispel that right now. Randy was never the – Randy was tough. Randy was – he would challenge the hell out of you when it came to a storyline or it came to a finish. Not because he was selfish, not because he thought of himself as better than anybody else, not because of any of that, but because he wanted to make sure that, that what he did made sense and that it was right in the long term for everyone, not just him. Randy was a very, very generous performer, sometimes too generous. Sometimes too easy to get along with and work with when it came to creative, if he was really passionate about a story. So the idea that Randy went, oh, because this is what that narrative, as you read it to me from Meltzer's Jersey, this is what that narrative implies, that Randy was one of those selfish, greedy fuckers making millions of dollars that got to call his own shots with his creative control. That's what that suggests. First of all, Randy didn't have creative control, number one. Number two, even if he did, he wouldn't have acted that way. That's clearly written and, and produced by somebody that does, did not know Randy Savage and had ever worked with him for more than three minutes because that wasn't Randy. And I'm not suggesting – I want to be really abundantly clear here. I am not suggesting that Randy was always easy to work with. He wasn't. Sometimes I thought he was half crazy. But he was half crazy for a good reason. So if there was any changes, and again, I didn't lay this match out. If there was any changes to the match or changes to the finish, they probably made sense. You know, this was an NWO versus WCW pay-per-view, by the way. Let's not forget that, Dave. You know, would it have made sense for for NWO to take a fall right here, knowing what's going to happen on the rest of the show? Probably not if one would be just a little bit objective and analytical about the overall presentation of this pay-per-view, what Randy suggested, if indeed he did, or whoever suggested it about Randy going over, was probably done to, to stack the deck from a perception point of view in, in NWO's favor. So, you know, when I hear this kind of stuff, and it's not that I, you know, I don't hate Dave Meltzer. I, you know, if I saw Dave and, you know, if, <laughs> and if we were both in the frame of mind to go, oh, fuck it, let's just go have a beer, I, that'd be fun. It's not a personal dislike for the man. But I I really resent and 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 get hot when he writes things like this that, that you know, obviously Randy's not here right now. It's not bothering Randy, and it shouldn't bother me. But it's so unfair and false 
to make up that kind of narrative that's going to last forever. You know, here we are 20 years later talking about it, uh, about a guy and, and it being so unfair to him. It's not true. It may have been entertaining for the people that read, you know, Dave's dirt sheet at the time. And it may, maybe, maybe it made them, those people that read that dirt sheet feel like they had inside information about this world that was otherwise so inaccessible. I get that psychology and why Dave would want to make people feel like they could kind of be behind the scenes and live vicariously through Dave's you know, massive, you know, insight to knowledge of, of professional wrestling, even though it didn't exist. I get that. It's, it's how he made his money, but it, that's, you know, I don't let me, let me get ask off the you, subject. Why, why were Scott Hall and Randy Savage not booked on this show? It's the biggest pay-per-view ever. The two of your biggest stars and they're not, you can't, you, you can't book Conrad. You can't you, you talk about diluting your talent, you know, and th- this is something that, well, let me answer the question first and I'll go, go into my logic behind it or lack thereof based on your own opinions. Um, one of the ways that I really wanted to try to keep talent fresh, let me go, let me back this up. I'm going to say it a better way. There's two different ways to kill a talent. Three, actually three, one, don't use them at all. Give them no exposure Two, give them bad exposure or three overexpose them. Those are three ways you can kill talent. And yes, they're, you know, one of our biggest stars, but you can't always put all of your biggest stars on every pay-per-view, in every main event, on every television show, because the audience will get sick of them. I fucking love sushi. I love sushi. If you get me in front of a sushi bar, a good sushi bar, you know, take me to Matsuhisa in New York City. You're a wealthy man, Conrad. I will eat you into oblivion in a good sushi bar. That's how much I love it. Now, if you take me to that same sushi bar, if you and I are in New York for two weeks and every night we go to that same sushi bar, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm sick of it. No matter how much I love it, if I get too much of it, I get sick of it. And I'll get to the point where I won't even eat sushi again for six months. And the same thing is true with talent. You know, you've got, you've got to move them around, you know, and I don't remember the specific – you know, rationale for taking them off one pay-per-view and putting them on another. I do know the rationale for this pay-per-view and this thing was booked perfectly for what it was supposed to achieve, you know, injuries and, and, and issues with, you know, people aside like Conan and Kevin and, and, and that, but you can't look at this and go, wow, this would have been a better pay-per-view if Scott Hall would have been on it in a different role, or this would have been a pay-per-view if you would have used Randy in a different way other than being a substitute. It would have had no impact on the pay-per-view, but at the same time, we wouldn't have overexposed him unless we had to, which we did in this case. No, I was just, you know, I'm really glad that Vincent was on the show. That's all. So let's talk about JJ Dillon. He comes out and puts all the referees names into a lottery and pulls out Nick Patrick. That's right. Nick Patrick, the former heel referee who sometime in the month of November, when you guys taped WCW Saturday night, uh, he was still doing the heel referee deal, but they edited it to make it not look like he's a bad guy anymore because they're going to try to make him a bit of a tweener here. We'll talk more about that later. Um, we should mention that he's actually been a, a, an active wrestler. I can't believe that's the thing, but he wrestled and lost to Chris Jericho a year prior at the November, 1996 world war three pay-per-view. So he's a big part of this storyline that we're going to have 
in our main event. And of course the son of the assassin, Jody Hamilton, who's helped run the power plant and is essentially working what the WWF would call the gorilla position. The next match we see on the show is one of the worst shits in the history of Starcade. It's Bill Goldberg pinning Steve Mongo McMichael in six minutes. And the recap here is hilarious in the observer. They started brawling in the aisle. Unfortunately, they wound up in the ring. There was no heat at all because it was the deaf, dumb, and blind leading the blind. And it ended up with a spot where Goldberg punched McMichael, who fell through a table set up at ringside. There was a small ECW champ. Not sure if it was mocking it since it was the weakest table breaking spot in history. McMichael got back in the ring, selling his back. He tried his tombstone pile driver, but couldn't hold Goldberg who then finished McMichael with the jackhammer hideous negative one star. Now the backstory here is on December 15th on nitro McMichael was supposed to wrestle Ming, but that doesn't happen because Goldberg attacks McMichael and lays him out before the match. And then after the match, there is some back and forth about a championship ring that Goldberg catches. And it's not really caught completely on camera. So maybe a bit of a miss. We're a far sight from where Goldberg is going to be a year from now. What'd you think of this match? I agree wholeheartedly with Dave on this one. (laughs) It was not pretty. And I, you know, watching it, it was... Uh, who booked this shit? Whose idea was that? Thank you. Listen, it's brutal. If you want to go see one of the worst matches in the history of Starcade, go watch this one. You know, it really is, uh, you know, he says the blind leading the blind Mongo probably while he was never great as a wrestler or a commentator, he was certainly a character and probably better at commentating than, than being a wrestler. Bret Hart's even gone on record saying he would have flat out refused to work with Mongo. And, and Goldberg is only a handful of months in. He debuted in September of 97. Uh, but it's cool that, you know, you guys knew you sat, you had something in him still. So he gets a win next up. We've got Perry Saturn in a match, and this is supposed to be uh, a different match. Raven's supposed to be here instead though. Of course, Raven can't wrestle, but he is there and they, they have a match. Uh, it's going to be Perry Saturn and Chris Benoit, and it's a no DQ match, like a Raven's rules match which wasn't what was promised, but given Raven's illness, they're making the best of it. It's not a bad match, but because there's so much silliness going on with the flock, it does feel a little convoluted star and a half. Of course, the original plan, as we said at the top of the show was Benoit and Raven, uh, chat me up here. What did you think of this match? And when did you remember knowing that Raven wasn't going to be good to go? I mean, he's, he's lost like 20 pounds here because this illness has really taken a toll on him. But I think a lot of people thought he'd pulled the nose up and he'd be okay here, but ultimately he doesn't get a chance to work the match. Yeah. I mean, once, uh, you know, a wrestler has an injury or a condition in this case, as serious as Ravens was, and it wasn't something like Kevin Nash's that happened, you know, 24 hours before <clears throat> this was something that was an ongoing issue. Um, and less, you know, said talent could provide a doctor's release that would satisfy Turner legal, not WCW legal, but Turner legal. Even if Raven would have wanted to get in the ring, he would have been able to. 
and he didn't have a doctor's release. He wasn't ready to get in the ring. It would have been dangerous. So, you know, it was what it was. Uh, he wasn't playing games. He wasn't conning anybody. He wasn't trying to get a bigger contract. He, it's not that he didn't want to do the finish. None of the, the typical, um, you know, cynical perspectives that sometimes, you know, fans have. This was just a situation. Um, we knew about it, I don't know, 10 days, 8, 10 days in advance because that's when we would have needed needed to see a doctor's release um, or start planning a plan B. So I would say we knew about it at, at the very least a week in advance. Next up is not the best match we ever saw. Marcus Alexander Bagwell gets a win over Lex Luger, 16 minutes and 36 seconds. It gets half a star. Meltzer would say that uh, Bagwell, his limitations as a worker are exposed wrestling Lex Luger because he can't carry Lex to a decent match. And he thought this one was way too long and boring. Hard to really argue it. I know both of these guys are capable of good matches, but they probably need to be shorter. Uh, what do you think when you watch this one back? Yeah, I can't disagree with you on that. Um, I, uh, I think I was just talking to you last week about how impressed I was with Lex Luger and, uh, and the the Circade 96 match that Luger had was probably one of the best ones I had seen him in. Um, this, you know, <laughs> was the antithesis of that. Uh, it wasn't a good match. It wasn't a bad match. I, I wouldn't say it, was, it wasn't embarrassing. It just wasn't entertaining. And it, it didn't tell a story. It didn't really lend itself to the direction or the theme or the tone of the pay-per-view because it didn't create enough emotion between Bagwell and Luger. They kind of went through the motions and did a decent job of going through those motions, but they forgot to create any emotion. Yeah. I wanted to ask, we haven't covered Bagwell in long form here on the show and God, I hope we never do, but do you think he was a better heel or a white meat baby face? It does feel like at one point, there's so many guys in the NWO that he can get a little lost in the shuffle. Did you prefer him as a heel or a babyface? I preferred him as a heel, um, because he—I mean, he's naturally a heel. By the way, oh yeah, you—you you, if you spend five minutes around Bagwell, you know, you either want to, you know, crack his skull or wish you could. Um, those are the only two, you know, <laughs> reactions that most people have when they're around him. He's not a, and he doesn't mean it. Here's the bad part. You know, Marcus is really a nice guy. He, he's kind of selfish and self-absorbed, um, always has been, uh, almost, I don't want to say narcissistic because that's a clinical definition, but, um, what I perceive a narcissist to be where everything is about him, <clears throat> but at the same time, he's he's a he really is a nice guy, but the the narcissistic part of his personality, and, and because he's you know he's got such a high opinion of himself, it kind of overwhelms any positive vibe that he could probably exude. So I don't think he could be a white meat baby face if his life depended on it. He's just a natural heel. And it made more sense to me to turn up the volume on his natural healness than it did to try to turn him, in, turn him into something he was incapable of being. Diamond Dallas Page is out next, and he's going to beat Kurt to win the United States title. Uh, both of the guys work hard, at least that's what Meltzer would say. But the crowd wasn't into it, and the match was just okay. Two stars. Oh, my God. I thought this was a good match. 
I thought it was the best match on the show. Now, this is the difference between a producer and a dirt sheet writer. Because a dirt sheet writer has never had to create the emotion that he or she likes to write about. They just they don't understand it. They don't understand what goes into it. They pretend they do, and they understand some of the terminology that's used when those who do know talk about it and lay things out. But they never really have any firsthand real understanding of it. Now, I, I didn't know you were going to hit me with that, you know, critique of this match. But I will say, and, and this is the God's truth. I got up early this morning to finish watching this particular pay-per-view, knowing we were going to do this um, recording early in the day. I was so excited about this match. Now, granted, I'm friends with DDP. The world knows that. We're not tight. We're not. I talk to him twice a year, okay? So it's not like I'm so close to him that I'm going to protect him or his legacy. That's not true. I'll bury him whenever it's appropriate. Same with Kurt Hennig. I've known, I knew Kurt Hennig, you know, Long before I ever got into professional wrestling, I knew Kurt Henning. We hung around a lot of the same people. That being said, go back. Forget about dipshit Dave Meltzer's dirt sheet and whatever he wrote at the time. I, I challenge anybody that's listening to this podcast, and I mean this sincerely. Go to WWE Network. If you don't want to watch the whole Starcade pay-per-view, that's your choice. Go to the WWE Network. Look at this match. And you tell me that the crowd was dead. Watch the finish of this match. People are on their fucking feet in the entire arena flashing the diamond cutter sign. What in God's name does Dave Meltzer mean by the crowd was not into it? This, these are words of a fucking moron who writes about <sighs> something he doesn't understand. And I swear to God, he didn't watch the same match I watched. If he said in his review of this, the crowd really wasn't into it. They worked hard, but nobody cared is the inference. Go back and look at the finish of this match, number one. And then, and then if you really want to be smart to the business, really study how they got to that end. Because like any good movie, it's not so much how the movie starts, it's how it finishes. Act one isn't supposed to blow your socks off, by the way. It's supposed to be a, 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 a lead-in, a, 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 a look, a glimpse into how the story of a match or a movie or a book or a TV commercial, for Christ's sake, is supposed to end up. Right. So go back and watch this match. Watch the, the first 20 seconds of this match, 30 seconds of this match. Kurt Hennig does more to get DDP over and to get that diamond cutter over more in the first 30 seconds of this match than most people would in 15 minutes. Just go back and look at it. I challenge you. And then tell me what you think on social media. Tell me what you think if you have the time to go and look at this match on WWE Network. Because this, to me, was a textbook match as a producer. Kurt Henning came out the first thing that he did because he's a fucking pro. And there was nobody better at what Kurt did than Kurt Henning. He came out and he, he put over that diamond cutter within 15 or 30 seconds. Page made a couple quick moves, went in to get the diamond cutter. Kurt sold it immediately. Like, oh, no way, man. His exact words, I'm too smart for that. You're not going to put me in that thing. He put it over. 
like a pro should. And that set the tone for the rest of the match. And did they work hard? Yeah, they worked hard. Here's two guys that are probably over 250, 260, okay? And they flew in that ring. And everything they did looked believable. Go back, watch that match. Tell me if there's one sequence during the course of that match that did not look absolutely believable. Go back and watch that match and tell me if you can find one moment in that match where one of the talents didn't put over or sell for the other and tell the story that led up to the end of this particular movie on this particular pay-per-view and look at the reaction of the crowd and you tell me that Dave Meltzer knows what the fuck he's talking about. Okay, I'm done. What's crazy too is the match wasn't even supposed to take place. The original idea was the payoff of Flair and Kurt in a cage match for the U.S. title, but of course Flair has to have surgery. He's out, so that doesn't take place. But what does take place is Larry Zabisco and Eric Bischoff. And, um, yeah, Bret Hart's the referee. The, this was actually spoiled very briefly, just a few days before on the 23rd, uh, a magazine, uh, on site or on sat, which is a satellite magazine came out and talked about the new NWO Thursday thunder show and referenced Starcade as being the biggest pay-per-view hit in company history. Of course it hadn't actually happened yet, but the fun thing coming out of the back end of this is what Meltzer writes of the match. By the way, you know, Larry gets a win here, 11 minutes and 12 seconds. He's going to earn a match with Scott Hall on November 24th as a result. And of course, WCW stays with Nitro quote. Funny thing is after the match, everyone was praising Bischoff for the great job he did in the match. I mean, it was great for a 41 year old guy who had never had a pro match before but the match didn't get anywhere near the heat it should have. And it seemed the air was going out of the crowd. The longer they were out there, I guess that's the wrestling business. He gave it a quarter star. Uh, obviously Bret Hart has a big role here with the big hand raise at the end, telling a story about the, the screw job that happened, uh, the month before with the WWE. What'd you think of the match? And what do you think of uh, Meltzer's critique? I'm going to go to the critique first. It was what it was. I'm not a wrestler. I wasn't a wrestler. I never intend. I was a gimmick. I was a prop that happened to have a ton of fucking heat. I'm going to do the same thing that I just did in talking about Kurt Henning and DDP. I'm going to challenge every one of our listeners who have the WWE network. And those of you that don't have it should get it, by the way. And I'm not saying they're not even sponsoring the show this week. Okay. And I'm certainly not kissing anybody's ass because I'll bury them at every opportunity that, that warrants it. However, you know, go back to the network, watch this match. If, if you believe, as most good producers and storytellers do, whether you're a movie director, a writer, a producer, a wrestling writer or producer, you know, whether you know it or not, the end always hangs on the beginning. You know, the, 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 the final scene in the third act always hangs on the relevance of the first scene in the first act. If you believe that the end hangs on the beginning and that you can't do really do an adequate job of telling a story successfully or effectively, if you don't pay attention to both bookends of a story, you're probably going to produce something that's not very interesting. So I would suggest to you that go to, go to this match and forget about – don't look at the beginning of the match. Watch the match from the – watch it backwards. What, what, watch the last three minutes of this match and observe it. Observe the reaction in the crowd. Observe the reaction to Larry Zbysko. Observe the reaction to Bret Hart. Okay? Then go back and watch it from the beginning. And you tell me 
whether that match was as bad as Meltzer or Meltzer suggested that it, it was. You know, granted, it shouldn't have. You know, what's first of all, you know, four star, five star, quarter star, no stars. Who gives a fuck? That's a subjective, you know, uh, rating based on one person's particular um, um, uh, appetite or or. Opinion. Or value or opinion in a certain style of match. Dave is obviously, and I'm not knocking him for this. It's because I, in this respect, I probably agree with him more than most people realize. I love a very, like an Eddie, you know, Dean match. I love a very technically skilled, believable, fast-paced match. I really do. I, as a personal preference, that's not always what the audience digs, by the way, but it is what it is. And I agree that from a technical point of view, this this match had no right to deserve any kind of a star from anybody, based on anybody's opinions. However, I will say from a storytelling point of view and a getting talent over point of view and, and from the perspective of creating emotion, which, oh, by the way, happens to equate to creating dollars because you can't do one without the other. In terms of creating emotion and getting over, other than the main event, I want to challenge anybody listening to this to, sh- to, to point out a match on this card that got a better reaction. I dare you. You won't. So – Again, this is where, and I know you think it's because I hate Dave, and it's not true. I've said this so many times. I don't hate Dave. I don't hate anybody, but I, I certainly don't hate Dave. But I, I do hate when narrative and in the framing of certain things in time, you know, it just is inherently so negative for no reason. And it's it doesn't help, you know, young people who don't know anything about the wrestling business trying to understand it to therefore appreciate it more. It doesn't help, you know, current fans really, you know, feel better about what they know or don't know about a match when they're deluged with such negative shit. Go back and watch this match. Watch the last three minutes of it and then, you know, email me back or or DM me and tell me how awful you think it was based on the reaction it got. Because certainly the people in the arena didn't think that way. Uh, Meltzer would say that you suffered a uh, knee injury during training for this match. What happened? I fractured uh, my left kneecap. When you see me hobbling around in this match, I'm not working. <laughs> I could barely walk. My knee was, oh, God, it was so big. I don't want to even try to compare it. It was probably the size of a cantaloupe um, when I was in the ring. Uh, and towards about the middle of the match, it went out on me. But that didn't, you know what? The match would have not have been any better if my knee was perfect, by the way. I'm not making an excuse. And actually, you couldn't, other than me selling it, and it was the appropriate time to sell it, it was actually bothering me quite a bit before I started visually selling it. Um, but other, other than, you know, me selling an, a, a real knee injury, because it was, the timing was appropriate, um, that match would have not looked any different if my knee was 100%. So it was, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not making an excuse. That's what I'm trying to say. Let's talk about the main event. Let's get here. Lots of rumor and innuendo. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking about this. You and I've touched on it on some live shows and you have an idea of where I, where I'll fall on this and I'm ready to fight again. So here we go. Uh, I guess we should back up, uh, for a long time on nitro JJ Dillon would show up and offer a contract for sting to wrestle different members of the NWO, whether it was Kurt or six or whoever sting would always rip up the contracts. The fans would start to chant Hulk Hogan or Hogan and sting would point to the crowd. And eventually the contract signing, uh, happens October 25th and it airs during a commercial break, 
for Hogan's movie Assault on Devil's Island, which did a 4.2 rating, and it was shown again on November 3rd. It starts with Hogan telling everyone to shut up, calls them idiots, says things a coward, he's not going to show up, and then, of course, he does with a baseball bat. He signs the contract and then points the bat at Hulk and walks backwards off stage. And it was said on air that this happened at the MGM grand in Las Vegas. Where did it really happen? When did you tape it? Whose idea was it to air it in the middle of the Hogan movie like this? Uh, it was my idea to air it in the middle of the movie because we thought we'd have a bigger audience than we might have for a nitro, which proved to be true. Um, I don't remember where we, where we produced it, you know, that I'm not even sure I was there. Okay. Let's talk about the match. Uh, of course, Sting's going to win the WCW for the fourth time here. He beats Hulk Hogan in just under 13 minutes. And Meltzer would say Sting in a sleeveless outfit looked really small compared to the past. Hogan looked lighter than usual as well. Not much of a match. He's going to go on and break down the match, but I've always been curious, you know, for uh, I don't know, almost a year, maybe a little more. We've seen Sting in the rafters and rappelling down. And here, he just walks in from the back like everybody else. Why? Why the deviation? Was it the right call? Was it a mistake? It certainly added to his character and the mystique of Sting for him to come down from the rafters. Why change that here? Well, I mean, common sense, right? Whenever Sting came down from the rafters, he wasn't announced. He wasn't booked. He wasn't in a match. It was a surprise attack. It was, it was, you know, it, it was Sting coming from out of nowhere to break up whatever was going on. You know, that's an effective use of, you know, the coming from the rafters kind of an entrance. It didn't make any sense for him to come from the rafters on a match at a pay-per-view where he's been previously booked and there was a contract signing. Just creatively made no sense i mean i guess you could have done it for the sake of doing it and argue that you know well it's consistent so you know there's an argument for it and i'm you know i wouldn't necessarily argue too hard against that but in the moment in the context of that time it it really didn't make any sense to me it didn't make any sense for him to be in the back if he's really a loner why is he in the back sharing a locker room with all the guys why is he he didn't share a locker room he had his own locker room we didn't he was a loner we didn't see that didn't need to see it. Well, okay. No, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm fucking with you. I'm just uh, I know you're doing the Bruce I'm Pritchard be, routine. I'm trying to be funny and I'm not, but you know, arguably you're right. You, that's something that could have been done. We, we could have, you know, hypothetically or in retrospect, we could have possibly enhanced his entrance on that particular pay-per-view by establishing that he still wasn't associating with anybody in WCW. He was still that, you know, crow, you know, yeah. uh, distant lone wolf type character. We didn't do that. Do, 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 do I think, or would you suggest that it would have had any measurable effect on the outcome of this pay-per-view? I don't think so. No, not at all. But you know, that's what we do. We break down the details here on the show. Let's talk about what Meltzer wrote about the backstory, because I mean, this is really well done and, and he has to tip his cap too. With carefully orchestrated theatrics and regular run-ins as time was running out on Monday night, some segments, which were actually botched made sting the second highest merchandise seller in the business, only behind Steve Austin, all this while never wrestling a match at first sting was supposed to make his triumphant return to the ring in February of 97 at the cow palace for super brawl. But the gimmick was working so well, they decided to hold him out for almost all of 1997 
climaxing with his winning the WCW title from Hulk Hogan and Starcade. It was obvious the gimmick was paying off big anticipation for the match reached a level unseen in pro wrestling in this country in many years. The signing of the contract during a break-in of a Hogan movie on TNT drew one of the largest made for cable movie ratings in history. It would be a turn of a great phrase to say that 16 months of work was exposed about halfway through Sting's walk down the aisle before he ever got in the ring. The mythical superhero turned human right before the fans very eyes. Now that is something that since you and I have spoken about this very recently on some of our live shows, I did not realize that Meltzer wrote, but I feel like you probably agree because you and I have argued about this off air quite a bit about why the decision was made to do something different. And you and I even talked about this way back when you appeared on woo nation, the original Ric Flair podcast. And you sort of told the story of how you guys had a meeting the day of Starcade, and by guys, I mean, sting Hulk Hogan and yourself catch us up from there. Everybody knows what the finish is going to be. This is the big payoff stings leaving with the title, but then you show up at the building, get everybody together, take it from here. The. Along the lines of the end, you know, the end always hangs on the beginning. You know, the, the your your commentary or you, you know, revisiting the commentary from from Dave Melser, you know, that's kind of the ironically it was the end. And it, you know, the beginning of this started for me. I mean, Dave, Dave's own reaction to and pointing out the fact that you know the the mythical character and the illusion that we spent sixteen or seventeen months creating kind of dissipating, you know, halfway down the aisle. I I agree with that. And, and actually, that's the same way that both Hulk and I felt earlier in the day. Um, there was an, a massive amount of anticipation on everyone's part. The fans, everybody in WCW, you know, pay-per-view company. I mean, every everybody felt we knew this was going to be the show of shows for WCW up to this point. And everybody, and I'm not just talking about Hogan for sure – Everybody had worked so hard for 16 or 17 months for this particular moment. Other talent, writers, producers, everybody, staying himself, everybody had worked really hard at, at getting to this exact moment. So let's go back to earlier in the day. I got to the building probably about 11 o'clock in the morning a little earlier than I normally would for a pay-per-view. We were on the East Coast. Obviously, the pay-per-view didn't start till I think, 8 o'clock at night. Typically, I would get to the building around noon or 1 o'clock for a production meeting. But I got there a little bit earlier that day, probably because I was thinking about my own match, and I knew that I was going to be a little busier or more distracted at the, at the very least because I was going to be in, in, in the ring. And I was intimidated by that, by the way. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's the first time I had ever done it. Um, I didn't want to let anybody down. That was my biggest fear. I wasn't worried about embarrassing myself or doing anything stupid, but I was worried about, you know, I didn't want to let Larry down. I didn't want to let Brett down. I didn't want to let anybody down, especially the fans. I wanted it to have a good payoff. And I was slightly <clears throat> preoccupied with that. So I got to the building early. Things went pretty well. I think Sting got to the building about one thirty, two o'clock, which would have been right about on time for him. Now, you know, we had 
pretty much had an idea what we knew what the finish was going to be going into this. So there was no there was no question about you know who was going to win and who was going to lose. We knew that. We had known that for twelve months. The question was how do we get there? So Sting showed up in my my dressing room. Hulk was already there, um, and when he walked in, I don't want to over dramatize this, and I also want to say. I'm, go- I'm not going to share everything in this recall because some of this stuff was personal to Steve Borden, a.k.a. Sting. And since he's never shared it, it's not up to me to do that. Just not going to do it. But I will give you as much information as I can. So we Sting walks in and both Terry and I kind of had the same. We didn't acknowledge it to each other, but we both had a similar reaction, which is, Wow. You know, he he doesn't look very excited about this. This was before we had one syllable of a conversation about what the finish was going to be or how we were going to get there. It, Sting, much like Meltzer observed during Sting's walkout, Sting had the same lack of energy or presence, I guess is even a better way of saying it. It was almost like he was only half there when he walked in the room. Now, Sting had... And I think he has acknowledged in the past that he was going through a lot of personal things in his life at the time. And ironically, because I have, I have become very close to Sting leading up to this this particular angle. Sting came out to Wyoming with his former wife and, you know, was looking and buying property right down the road from me. And we went to Yellowstone together and did a bunch of nature photography. I mean, we rode Harleys together. I'd occasionally go to, over to his house on the weekends. And when the weather was good in Atlanta, we'd jump on our Harleys and drive around. So it wasn't like we just had a purely business relationship, certainly not best friends or anything like that, but we were, we were close enough where we would, you know, we would talk generally. I didn't know, because, you know, Sting, you know, during the, the whole Crow angle as it began and the character just kind of showed up in the rafters and didn't really talk and you know, didn't really engage with anybody. Well, that wasn't just the character. That was really what was going on with Steve Borden. He, Steve used to be – he wasn't like a huge party animal. He Not at all, as a matter of fact. Um, he he – you know, he wasn't the guy, you know, hanging out with the boys at the bar. He wasn't that kind of a social animal. He and Lex, even, you know, prior to all of this, you know, pretty much stayed to themselves. You know, they didn't hang out with the with with, with the team, so to speak, after the shows. But Steve was always very sociable. You'd see him backstage and he was always talking to people and laughing and joking and playing cards and doing all the things most guys did. But once we started the Crow character and that, that angle leading up to this pay-per-view, I didn't really notice it a lot at first, the first several months, but Singh would show up very late because he didn't, you know, we weren't working out finishes. He wasn't cutting promos. He wasn't doing all the things that normally would happen during a show. He was simply showing up. We knew what the stunt was. We knew what the entrance was. We knew when it was going to be. It was pretty cut and dry. Um, so he'd get to the building in time to rehearse the the repel um, with, with Ellis Edwards and then he'd go off by himself. He didn't socialize a lot. I quit socializing or talking to, to Steve just as much simply because I just didn't see him. He'd come into the building and do his thing and he'd leave. And he was almost like a ghost, uh, very similar to his character, believe it or not. So what we didn't realize and what a lot of us didn't know is just the depth of the personal issues that Steve was having in his life. It wasn't apparent to us. Now at Starcade, you know, now fast forward 16 months, 
Now we show up at Starcade, and now it's time to kind of change that pattern. See if we had to get to the building pretty early. Now it's time to sit down and talk. And I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but none of us had seen Steve without his gimmick on, right? We didn't realize that he quit working out. We didn't realize, for example, I know this sounds artificial or, or superficial, I should say, and, and childish, but he didn't even bother to, to tan. And I know that sounds funny to people who aren't in the business, but I guarantee you everybody that you watch on WWE spends a certain amount of time maintaining their tan, however they do it, <clears throat> naturally or unnaturally. You know, you've got to take care of your body. You're, you're out there in your underwear, for crying out loud. You've got to look the part, right? And when Steve came in, he was substantially smaller. He obviously had not been to the gym, um, you know, agreeing with the point that Dave made that he noticed during the walkout. We noticed when Steve walked into our room. He'd obviously not been to the gym. There was no preparation, you know, physically on, on Steve's part. He hadn't even bothered to spend 20 minutes getting a spray tan for crying out loud. So, you know, and Hulk and I talked about it after the fact, long after the fact, you know, certainly not in that moment. But I think we both recognize the same thing, that this this guy that just walked into the room, Steve Borden, is a shell of the Steve Borden that we thought we were going to see. And it, 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 it was almost shocking in a way. I mean, that's not saying he was emaciated and, you know, run down and look like a wino. That's not true either. But, what we expected, given the magnitude of what we had built and where we knew we were going to go and what we were planning on doing, we expected somebody to come in to that room ready to play at the very highest level. And what we saw was the same thing that Dave Meltzer saw. So the original plan, tell us what the original plan for the finish was and when... And, and, uh, why you thought it needed to, I mean, you explained why it needed to pivot, but what the pivot was and who suggested it. You know, this is going to piss a lot of people off. You know, the original finish was thing was going to go over how he was going to go over. That wasn't my deal. You know, I, I, I didn't ever get involved even at this point in the details of a finish just wasn't my strength. I can't emphasize that enough. And and rather than engaging myself and involving myself in things that I knew I didn't really know enough about, um, I let the talent have a lot of say, especially somebody like Steve and Hulk Hogan. Who who better, you know, who on our, our roster of talent, I'm talking about wrestlers, but in terms of producers and bookers and whatever you want to call them, agents, who better than to figure out a great finish for that particular match than the two guys involved, right? In normal circumstances, that would have been easy to do. This was not a normal circumstance. We knew what the finish was that we wanted before we got to the building, before we before we got on a plane. We knew about it months in advance. We knew we wanted Sting to go over. How he went over, he had to go over strong. He had to. We had to end the story exactly the way the audience wanted it to end, on the highest note possible. That was the finish going in. How how we were going to get there on a step by step basis. Um, I can't tell you because I wasn't involved. Now, in terms of the changes as a result of really feeling 
and believing as much as, you know, I like Sting as a human being, as a friend, as a performer, as a, one of the most loyal WCW, you know, talents on the roster. He just, he wasn't up for it. It's like he, I, I want to try to do an adequate job of explaining this without over overstating it. It's almost like he didn't believe it was actually going to happen long, long, long before he got to the months ago. Maybe when the whole angle first started, this is the, I'm not saying he felt this way. I'm saying this is the impression that we had. I had, I'll speak for myself. Um, the impression I had is that this whole thing, this whole big buildup, um, he never believed it was really going to happen. He, he believed he was going to get screwed out of an opportunity and he quit six months before this event. He quit caring. He quit take care of himself. He, he quit preparing. He showed up with no energy no anticipation, with no enthusiasm. It was just like, okay, you guys are going to fuck me, so let's get it over with. That was the vibe that I got. Whether he, I don't think he really felt that way, but that was the vibe he was given off. And as a result of that, we probably went through five or six different you know, alternatives and options, maybe more, because we knew we were in trouble. Terry, you know, after you know, we talked with, with Steve and Terry and myself, you know, Steve left the room and we said, okay, let's reconvene in an hour. Let's think about where we're at. Let's think about what we've talked about so far and then we'll come back and pick it up again in an hour. Because sometimes you just got to let this stuff kind of set in and start to visualize it and make sense out of it. And uh, after Steve walked out the door, you know, Terry and I both just looked at each other and, and Terry said, you know, brother, he's, he's not ready. He's not into this. I, and I, I agreed with him. Not because he was Hulk Hogan and as Dave Meltzer or, you know, any other dirt sheet writer probably would have wanted to write at the time that, you know, I was letting, you know, Hulk Hogan run the company. It wasn't it. It just wasn't it. And as evidence, you know, not that I'll ever use Dave Meltzer to prove a point, but, you know, the same vibe that Meltzer had was the same vibe that we had. It's like, dude, we spent an entire, almost a year and a half building this angle. We've sacrificed, by not mean sacrifice, but we've used so many great characters along the way to escalate this arc and to make sure that it builds appropriately. We maintain momentum. We've done something that had never really been done before in recent wrestling history and, and, and hasn't been done yet, by the way, which is you know creating a story at the very beginning and building it over the course of 17 or 18 months. And not only doing it, but doing it as, as well as we did. Almost flawless, arguably, in, 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 to be honest about it. So to get to that moment and to feel before we even, you know, had lunch, like the air was out of the bag, was very disappointing for everybody. I'm sure it was disappointing for Steve. I know it was disappointing for Terry. I know I was disappointed. And I know everybody that tried to had to make, you know, had to, had to figure out how to solve this problem um, was as frustrated as we all were. So you guys make the pivot to do the screw job finish. How do you lay it out to Nick Patrick and, and Bret Hart? Again, you know, I'm not, I'm not begging off. It's, I mean, if I would have been involved in it, I would walk you through, you know, my, my involvement in it. I was involved in the discussion in terms of, okay, we, we, we've got to change the finish. We've got to come up with something different than what we came up with because what we came up with, isn't going to really work. Um, then it went to, you know, the Kevin Sullivan's and, and Terry himself and Steve and everybody involved. And I'm sure that, you know, Terry Taylor probably chimed in to a degree as he would and should have, um, you know, 
I, I didn't get involved in the finish or the, or the, or the details of it. You know, in the time since then, the referee, Nick Patrick has said that one person, the boss of WCW came and told him to do one thing. And then the real boss of WCW came and told him to do something else. And he's referencing the fast count. And it's insinuated that you told Nick Patrick to do the fast count and that Hogan told him to count regular. Did you tell Nick Patrick to do the fast count? No, no. And look, well, let me, let me, let me retract that. Maybe, maybe if at some point during the course of the day, and I know this is going to sound like smarmy and sleazy and like I'm trying to avoid it. I hope the people that listen to the show and have been listening to the show you know, for the six months you and I have been doing it, I think it's almost six months, realize that I'm not afraid to take any heat or responsibility for some of the stupid shit I did. I'm not. I have, I have no qualms about taking responsibility for some of the bad decisions I made or mistakes that I made along the way. Um, I'm not going to take it here, um, at least not where I deserve, where I don't deserve it. Now, here's how, here's how Nick Patrick may have been telling the truth. To a degree. If at some point during the course of the day, Kevin Sullivan or Terry or Steve would have come to me and said, okay, we've got to figure it out. Here's what we're going to do. Great. As long as it got me to where I needed to be, <laughs> again, the end always hangs in the beginning. As long as that show ended exactly the way I wanted it to end, I didn't really give two shits how we got there. Because when I say I didn't give two shits, it's not that I didn't care. It's just that my my opinion of how we got there wasn't as valuable as the opinions of people that had more experience than I did. Rightly or wrongly, I relied upon them. And, and I very rarely questioned finishes. As long as, to me, as a layman in that particular field of expertise, the, the finish – led me to the the very end, the very last 30 seconds of the scene at the end of that movie, then I was happy with it. But how you got there was sausage making and I wasn't a good sausage maker. So if somebody would have come to me, and again, somebody you know, like Kevin Sullivan or Terry himself or Steve and said, okay, Eric, we got to figure it out. This is what we're going to do. I would have said, great. And if Nick Patrick would have come up to me or if I would have crossed cross paths with Nick and he would have said, hey, do you guys know what we're going to do yet? I would have conveyed to him what I was what I was told. OK, here's what we're going to do. And I also would have said, by the way, make sure, as I often did, not just in this case, but, you know, when it came to a match of this high profile with personalities as big as this and, and this high profile, I would have made sure that that referee was in the room while the finish was being laid out. OK. Um, it's not like, you know, on the way out to the ring, the talent, we get together and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. You know, the, the, the referees were, is engaged or should have been is engaged in the laying out the finish of a match as the two principles in the ring. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, but if, if Dick would have come up to me at some point during the day, if I had been told, here's what we're going to do, I would have communicated that to Nick. And I would have said, no, get your ass in the room and get with the guys and make sure you understand what they're going to do. So you you know, you're not hearing it from me secondhand. That could have happened. And it could have changed throughout the course of the day, as it often does, even to this day. Finishes change right up to the last moment. 
in one of the most successful, well-oiled, well-structured wrestling companies in the history of the world. So it wasn't unusual then as it's not unusual now. Um, but we weren't as good at it then. The communication wasn't as good. The infrastructure, the process, the protocol probably wasn't nearly as good as it could have been or there wouldn't have been any confusion. And there was. Admittedly, there was confusion as a result of the lack of good communication and, and protocol. Two things I want to talk about here. One is that Nick Patrick wasn't even the original plan for this referee spot. Allegedly, the reason they did this whole, we're not going to announce who it is and we'll decide at the pay-per-view and we're going to draw it out of a hat was that you guys, even up until the last few days, were trying to make a play or liked the idea of making a play to get Earl Hebner, the guy who screwed Bret Hart the prior month at survivor series in Montreal to come in with the idea that if his name was drawn out and you realize it's the same referee that screwed Bret Hart, then when Bret comes in and does the run in, maybe that makes sense. Now, the reason I bring this up is if you had that sort of in mind, we didn't though. I mean, we didn't, and we can play with that. If you want to, you know, hypothetically, I, don't, I have no problem doing that because I love the idea. It's a very cool idea. It's first I've heard of it, by the way. Okay. But so, it's, it's so, really exciting because, because of the Brett situation. Sure. But, but anybody, I have to, I just got to say this and then we'll play with it. Um, anybody that knew Brett at this particular point in time. He, he wasn't having that. Not a fucking chance. Not a chance. It's just, and that's why, again, you know, up until a few days before the event, we're actually trying to get Earl Hebner. Give me a fucking break. What was was written verbatim is Nick Patrick was going to turn heel as a ref in a role that was originally designed for Earl Hebner. However, WCW either never made a strong enough effort to contact Dave or Earl, or they turned down the offer because it's obvious that that's what the original role in this match was booked for. It's obvious to who, and I don't mean to interrupt you, Conrad. I know it's rude, and and I love you for giving me the opportunity to do this podcast. But when you roll through something like that, I got to point that out. According to who? You're misunderstanding what he's saying is obvious. It's obvious that the role was to be a heel referee. Okay. So, I mean, we we agree on that, right? It's obvious that there's going to be a heel referee. That's the reason the Bret Hart situation happened. So. Maybe he's freestyling, but it would have been pretty awesome if Hebner would have won the, the referee lottery, but that wasn't in the plans. Um, Meltzer would write, after a lackluster match, even which saw boring chance two minutes in, Hogan delivered the foot to the face and the leg drop finish. At this point, the plan was for Patrick to deliver a fast count and have Sting still kick out before three, but Patrick would rule it as a pin, leading to Bret Hart avenging the wrong done to him at Survivor Series and getting the match restarted taking over as referee, leading to Sting, winning with the Scorpion submission in the middle. A funny thing happened. Patrick didn't count fast. Now I'm going to keep going through the recap because Meltzer makes some good points in here. But first I want to ask, was Bret Hart always supposed to be involved in the finish? I mean, we know that, you know, how we're going to get there is going to change, but it does feel like if he's the referee in your match for thunder, which we talked about, uh, or Nitro rather that maybe having him come back out, you've already had a precedent set that he's a referee. Did that just fall in your lap or was that ever even discussed before day of, as far as you knew? Honestly, I'm not sure I understand the question. So, so three days before was, was Bret Hart going to do anything beyond referee your match? Oh, 
I don't think so. Okay. Meltzer would say you can miss time a ref bump. You can blow a move, but how can you blow a fast count? The only reasonable answer to this is Hogan changed the spot in the ring and Patrick didn't want to cross Hogan because of all the power he wields, even though the plan was different coming off the heart Michaels deal, which has been the catalyst for everything in the business since is Bischoff and Hogan and nobody else, perhaps thing decided to do a non fast count. When there was supposed to be a fast count on an angle is your head spinning yet, but that doesn't make sense either because why would they have the announcer sell it as a fast count the next day? So hard when in fact it wasn't. And it was the case of the guy who got screwed and made a fool would have been Hart, who, if anything, this company was trying to portray after the matter, the last company did. So the idea here is. The announcers are really pushing the next day that it was a fast count, but anybody who's paying attention can see it's not a fast count. Did you have a conversation with Nick Patrick on the heels of this event as to why the fast count didn't happen? I had a brief conversation with him. I mean, look, I know there, you know, and I don't hear it as much anymore, read it as much anymore, but you know, the narrative used to be what a hothead I was and how I'd lose my temper and lose my cool. None of which is true. I very seldom lost my temper. Um, I wasn't the most personable person, meaning social, you know, I didn't walk around backstage when I'd see people catering and shake hands, you know, do the normal wrestling, you know, professional courtesy gimmick, um, superficial as it usually is. I never did it. You know, and oftentimes when I get to the building, I was overwhelmed. I'm, we're understaffed. I'm inexperienced. I'm focused on what I'm doing. And occasionally people would walk by me and I wouldn't look up and say, hey, how are you doing? I would just go about my business. And as a result of that, I had this reputation. And I think it's, you know, where they, you know, throwing coffee at Eddie Guerrero, which, by the way, never happened. You know, and all that stuff, you know, my my reaction to things and the way I, I reacted to them has been distorted over the years. Typically, when something like this happened, where something went wrong, as, as, as it did in this case, I always looked at it, and I still do. Look, I can't change it. I can't fit right now me losing my fucking cool and yelling and screaming and throwing shit is going to change absolutely nothing. The water, the, 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 as I usually say, the bullet has left the barrel. I can't put it back. It's gone. Now all I can do is focus on trying to fix it. So did I confront Nick? Yes, I did. Did I lose my mind? Did I scream and did I yell? Did I corner him and say, how the fuck could you possibly do this? How could you get this? None of that happened. It was a conversation that was probably less animated than, one, than the one I'm having with you. And it probably sounded something like, Nick, what the fuck? He, he would have told me whatever happened or how it got miscommunicated, which was clearly the case here. It was miscommunication. It wasn't Hulk Hogan, you know, working the gimmick. It wasn't, it wasn't trying to take it. It wasn't any of that. It was poor communication. Simple as that. It, it, it just, it, it, it just irks me to have to still, you know, listen to people espouse this narrative of it was just another Hulk Hogan plan. Oh, in which, Eric, by, by, by the way, in which case he would have gotten nothing more out of it. He wouldn't made 10 cents more Come on. with one finish than he would with another. Now go ahead. No, I'm just saying like, dude, you yourself say that he'd rub that old Fu Manchu and say, that doesn't work for me, brother. And now you're going to act like it's ludicrous that we might think that that's what happened here. When you managed to fuck up the single biggest moment in the history of wrestling. And now 20 years later, you get on here and lie through your fucking teeth and say, it's cause he wasn't tan. 
I'm not lying through my fucking teeth. You fucking finish over a tan? Is this real? Yeah, it is real. And the tan was one aspect of it. It, it may be a small aspect to you and, and to, to the fans listening to this. But when you've got a talent that shows up that is totally not prepared nor engaged, has not before, has had 12 or 16 months to get ready for this moment where we're going to make this huge, huge change in the direction of the company. And the guy shows up like he just heard about it 45 minutes ago. It tends to make you rethink your position. And whether you agree with it or not agree with it, you know, the, the fact that your good buddy Dave Meltzer even recognized the lack of energy and the lack of in, in terms yeah. of expectation, the lack that represented Sting during his walkout was the same thing that we felt. So, yeah, it makes you change your direction. And it wasn't because of a tan. It was because a combination of a whole lot of things that suggested to us that this guy's head was not in the game, which, by the way, Steve has admitted. Later on, after the fact, due to the circumstances in his personal life, there were he was going through a lot of shit. His head was not in the game. We recognized it, and we made a decision afterwards. That's the truth. You may not like it, but it doesn't make it a lie. Here's the reality. After you've had this built up for 15 months, and now you tell the guy right beforehand that the finish that everybody and their fucking brother knows is coming is now not happening, and we've been building to this single moment is it any wonder that he's not out there fucking high-fiving and kissing babies? No, 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 no. You know, I'm not going to let you off. You're not going to get away with that. If Steve would have walked through the doors the way he should have been, the way he should have been, which was prepared, ready to go, the finish. And by the way, who walked out of there with the World Heavyweight Championship that night? Well, that's what I'm still, that's what I'm so curious no, 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 you, you, the right guy, but you fucked it up. That's my point. Like, I how don't did understand. we fuck it up? How did we fuck it up? Look at the end of that show. Look at the re- number. It's, it's easy to say this in hindsight, and it may not have been as good as it could have been because what could have been had all of the circumstances been what they should have been, it would have been a massively clean, right over the top, no confusion finish with Steve. Guess what? Got to go to plan B. His head is not in the game. That character didn't show up prepared to do what it needed to do. Somebody else did. So we had to adjust to make sure that we got the reaction we wanted to get. Yes, it was a decision. Yes, it was a choice. But I, I will stand by it to this day. If if you had somebody working for you, Conrad, and I'm, I, look, this is going to be a horrible analogy and a dangerous parallel here, but you know, you were a very successful guy. You've built up a great reputation reputation with your mortgage company. You have certain expectations of the people that work for you. If you're ready to close a big deal, the big deal that you and I talked about that you're working on, you know, right now or is coming up soon, and somebody who was very important to that equation showed up 20 minutes before the meeting, looking like he just got out of bed. And I'm not saying that's the way Steve looked, but totally unprepared. And you realize, holy crap, I've been relying on this guy to live up to this particular moment and his head is not in the game. I think I have to go to a plan B. It's what you do. It may not be what you it may not be what you want to do. You may feel right or wrong 20 years after the fact. But in that moment, you feel like you're doing the right thing. And that's, you know, that's, that's as much justification as I'm going to try to, to give this, because no matter what I say, you're going to feel the way you feel, you know, people are going to feel the way they feel. And that's fine. But I'm telling you as a guy that was there, what the motivation was, why would we as a company, 
Why would Hulk sell if Hulk was so selfish and just wanted everything for himself, which I don't understand anyway, because again, he didn't make a dollar more one way or the other. Because right? Hulk Hogan so the- out of his own mouth, just two fucking months ago, less than that said in front of a, a packed house at the NWO reunion, I was told this business was a work, but brother, when the guy with the belt makes the most money, well, now it's a shoot brother. That doesn't always, yeah, that applies in a lot of situations. And when you, when you, you know, more often than not, when someone says, who's the biggest star in the business, Stone Cold Steve Austin or, or Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan is going to use that reference. He's going to go back to that tagline that he's used, you know, probably a half a million times over the last 30 years. It's really all about who makes the most money at the end of the day. But in this particular case, let's use that now. Does Hulk Hogan make any more money at the end of the day? whether Steve Sting goes over clean or goes over with an assist or goes over with, you know, a Bret Hart involvement. Does, does Hulk Hogan make more money that way? Or does Hulk Hogan make more money just beating Sting clean? Hulk, you know, Hulk Hogan makes more money by having a disputed finish that you guys can then come back and do big houses at subsequent pay-per-view. No, that's not true. He's going to be on that pay-per-view anyway. Are you suggesting that, you know, for somehow Sting's going to come out on top and we're going to leave Hulk Hogan home when he was the hottest heel in the industry at that point? I'm suggesting that he wants to make sure that he's got the next few pay-per-views lined up where it's him and Sting. No, that's not, that's just not true. Well, I mean, here's what I'm saying. You're saying he's not ready, but all you can cite is, uh, he wasn't excited backstage and he didn't have a tan. And so I'm going to, it's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to go into the deeper, darker details listen, of this. Listen, this is a, this is a business where no matter what's going on, you try to wheel them out there, whether it's Jeff Hardy at a TNA pay-per-view or whatever. That's not true. That's not true. No, hang on. Here's my point. It, it, this is the highest, this is the hottest angle in the history of the company. You sold more t-shirts. He is the top merchandise seller now, not the NWO. It's the highest ratings. It's the hottest angle. All you've got to do is stinger splash scorpion Deathlock tap the fuck out. We're done, but we overcomplicate it and convolute it because we want to bow to the, to the fucking master and make sure that he's got a few more pay-per-views. That's what happened. Now you can, that's not what happened. It's not what happened. That is what fucking you were home. You were home popping fucking pimples while, you know, watching this shit on TV when it happened, you weren't there. I was there. That's not, you were there driving it in a fucking ditch. That's where you were. This would have been real easy just to do the easy goddamn finish, but you let Hulk over fucking convoluted. Now, whether you acknowledge that you did that on purpose or not is another thing. Nick Patrick is the guy who fucked it up and you didn't fire him, but you fired fucking honky talk man for not wanting to do a job to Mark Marrow. What the fuck? What does it take to get fired in this fucking company? Jacqueline doesn't want to fucking put over Miss Elizabeth. Get the fuck out of here. You ruined our biggest goddamn pay-per-view ever. See you tomorrow. What the fuck? I don't, I, I, I don't know that that, you know, look, I can, I can easily see, and I could see them. I'm not going to fire a guy. I'm not going to fire Nick Patrick because the communication between the principals involved in the match and the referee sucked. I'm not going to fire him for that. There was a lot of confusion. There were a lot of people involved. And I'm, you know, if somebody, if somebody does, you know, what does it take to get fired or what did it take to get fired? You know, with me, um, you know, it was tough to get fired despite the fact that, you know, I had this reputation of loving to fire people. I've fired very few people. One of the biggest mistakes I've probably made during my time at WCW, frankly, was not firing a whole the fuck bunch more that I'll, that I'll cop to. Um, and maybe I should have fired Nick, well, but I don't think it was Nick's fault. I think it was the agent's fault. 
And I think it could have been the talent's fault. So let me but, ask, let, let me ask, since you said his head's not in the game, you guys go to a rematch the very next night. I don't know why the fuck you're giving away your biggest shit ever the very next night on nitro, but you were, but you go off the air before it's done. You get more complaints than any time in WCW history, the Tuesday after, because you promise the match and then don't show the finish, but you do smash the competition in the process, which is the name of the game. It's numbers. You get a 4.6 raw gets a 3.6. Eventually you strip the title of sting, which backs up what you're saying. His head's not in the game, blah, blah, blah. But you fucking give it to him in February. What's the difference? Magically his problems at home are better. What'd you do? Get him a goddamn tanning bed. What changed between the end of December and fucking Super Bowl in February? You done? <laughs> Jeez, Conrad, settle down, big man. I'm, I'm getting. I, I don't, I don't want you to bust a fucking blood vessel doing this stuff. I know you're hot about it. I know it doesn't make any sense to you, and I, I get it. I feel you. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not going to bullshit you, Conrad. You know that. I'm not going to make something up because it's cute or it's convenient or it tells a better story than the reality of it all. Best as I can explain, we were trying to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. A lot of people were disappointed in Sarkay. Nobody more than me. Nobody more than Hulk. Nobody more than Steve. Nobody more than WCW, you know, employees. We were all disappointed in it. And what we did afterwards was trying to make up for that, trying to pick up the momentum that we knew we had lost. That's what, that's what February was good or bad, right or wrong. That's what it was. It feels like it was part of Hogan's plan. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying either. I mean, I don't understand how Nick Patrick's not fired. Plan for what? What is the plan for Hulk Hogan's contract? You've read it. You know what it is. It didn't matter what he did. If he showed up carrying fucking water, you know, for the people that rang the bell at the side of the ring um, on a pay-per-view, he would make the same amount of money as if he is if he wrestled in the main event and bet 25 people for a world championship. It didn't fucking matter. So the whole premise of this you know, Hulk Hogan, cynical, you know, working behind the scenes, the ultimate worker, conning everybody, using his leverage and his power to achieve what? Something he's going to get anyway? It makes no sense. It only makes sense if you live in the fight, if you've got that needle in your arm because you're addicted to that conspiracy kind of dirt sheet bullshit no, that everybody no. used to thrive on then it makes sense it makes but sense. in reality it, it, in it, reality it, go ahead it I'm makes sorry. sense when a guy who supposedly runs the fucking show can't fucking explain why he did what he did i explained it for fuck's sake no you didn't explain february at all eric i'm not gonna let you sit here and fucking say he wasn't ready he wasn't in a right state of mind he had problems at home he wasn't tan so we he fixed all of that in two months not no, when he should have fix fixed it but he fixed it all in two months. So February, we just fucking put it on him then. No, we didn't fix it. He didn't fix it. We were, as I said earlier, we were doing the best we could do to try to recover the momentum we knew that we had lost in December. That's what we did. That was that was the catalyst for the decision that was made in February. You may not like it. It may not, you know, solve your conspiracy theory, you know, point of view. But that was a fact, right or wrong, good or bad. Horrible or not, stupid or not, 
That's what we were trying to do. We lost momentum. We spent 16 months building up a fucking storyline. We did it better than anybody had ever done it. We knew that we had magic in a bottle or lightning in a bottle. And we got to that pay-per-view and it fizzled. And we knew it. And we tried to recover the best way we could. What was I supposed to do? Send him home and not use him? I'd have got fucking heat for that. You'd have been bitching at me right now about that decision if that's what it would have been. It was a no-win situation. We did the best we could. Take it or leave it. I'm not fucking taking it. It's not sufficient for me. <laughs> oh, you're cold. The idea, the idea that, that we've got this fucking giant fucking storyline. I, I, it's just unbelievable to me that we've got 15 months and all we've got to do is the most simplistic, easy thing ever, but we're not going to do it. I mean, we would do it for Goldberg six months later, seven months later. But we're not going to do it here. It's just <clears throat> crazy to me. Maybe Goldberg. All right, let's let, let's do this. Let's play what if. Goldberg had a better tan. I get it. Let's play what if. Now, have, have you have you gone back and looked at Starcade? Have you looked at this pay per view? Yeah. Recently. Yeah. Recently. Okay. Tell me how much more emotion and satisfaction. For every one of the people that were in that arena, and then I would say anecdotally, every assuming everybody reacted at home the way the people reacted in the arena on average, um, how could we have possibly created more goodwill, more satisfaction, more of a sense of you know fans getting their money's worth, a better payoff? How could measurably – you can't measure it, so it's not fair of me to ask you that. But how could we have done more than we did? Going back and looking at that crowd reaction, forget no. about what you've read in a dirt sheet. No, listen, it's a great point what you're making because at the end of the night, you got it right in terms of there's a big visual, the locker room cleans out or empties out, everybody lifts thing up on their shoulders. For some fucking reason, no one understands. He yells mamacita into the fucking camera, but whatever. <laughs> the belt is over his head. Yes. He hadn't said a word in 16 months and the camera zooms in and he looks in and he goes, blah, 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 mamacita. I think it was because he was cornered by a bunch of the Lucha guys and he was speaking Spanish to him and he didn't know what else to say, but it was pretty funny. It, it's hilarious, but, but still it's a great visual and it is the big it, it's what we needed to end the pay-per-view, but that's what I don't understand. Like what was all the other nonsense in there? If this is still going to be the result, he's not ready, brother. Then why are we still putting the belt on him? Fucking beat him. If he's not ready, if his goddamn tanning bed bulbs are blown, beat his pale ass. I no, get it. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that, that's, that's such a simplistic, unfair reaction. No, it, it's, if, it's if a we would have beat sting that night. That fucking building would have crumbled with anger. Then why do you, the nonsense with the fuck up what, finish? Well, okay, let's talk, let, just bear with me here. Okay, forget about how much you hate this. Forget about how much you're not believing what I'm telling you. Let's put all that aside. What what harm was done? Not only not, I'm not only going to ask you what harm was done which by your own admission, really none was because of the reaction we got at the end of the show and the way people felt about it when it was over. So I'm going to even put that aside for a minute. But what else did we accomplish in that match? Again, think about the context of the times. You got Bret Hart in there. Bret Hart was the ultimate do the right thing in the ring guy based on what had happened to him. We were trying to get Bret Hart over. We were trying to establish Bret as the 
probably going to be the lead guy in, in WCW, at least one of them. Between what he did in, in my match that I had with Larry and now what he did by forcing a restart, we actually got Brett over even more given the context of where, what he had just been through in this match. Let me, let me we established say, him. I give you gr- great kudos for that because I thought when I first saw this, this was the plan all along, which makes the whole Earl Hebner rumor. That makes total sense to me. If Bret Hart interfering in the main event or, or doing what he did in the main event was the plan all along, I don't really have a problem with it, but because it's a fucking fast, regular count, not a fast count, but a regular count, the whole thing's botched. What makes no, it, it worse? We, we agree on that, but well, here's we, what makes it worse that you tell me that Bret Hart interfering was not always the plan and that you made the decision because sting wasn't tan. You what? sound no, no, like no, no, a fucking no, no. idiot. You, 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 you just, you know, I get what I, I understand what you're doing and how you feel and why you feel the way you do. It wasn't just because he had it. He didn't have a tan. I'm telling you, that was one example of how unprepared he was. But you if still you, put if you brought your guy to your mortgage meeting. Okay. And he showed up and forgot to wear his fucking pants. All right. Or he showed up in a shirt that had fucking ketchup and mustard all over the front of it. It may seem like a little thing, you know, to somebody who's not really involved in that particular moment or, or, or issue. But it's an indication that this guy probably isn't up to his up to the task. So you can keep using that. He didn't have the fucking tan like it's some minimal thing, but it's an example or or uh, in a, a manifestation of a much larger issue, which is the guy is not ready for this. But we've got to still- we've got to camouflage it because we don't think he's going to be able to pull it off. It would be no different than if an NFL player showed up to play in a game and he was fucking intoxicated. Or, it, or there was a chance he might be. And I'm not suggesting Steve was. He wasn't. There was, no, there was not even a thought of that. But as an example, when, when, you, when you've got a big moment and somebody that you're depending upon is not ready or you don't think he or she is ready based on their appearance, the way they conduct themselves, the way they carry themselves, and you've got no choice but to make a decision because you know you need to make it as good as it can be, you make a decision. You call the, you call the, you call the play on the spot. And that's what we did with it wasn't the plan all along. It was our way of kind of fixing this shit. Yes, there was a breakdown in communication. Yes, it should have been a fast count. No, it wasn't a fast count. If you want to blame it on communication or if you want to live in your cons- world of conspiracy theories and your Dave Meltzerville, then go ahead and believe that it's because Hulk Hogan was – first of all, you, you've been around Terry. He doesn't plan that fucking far ahead. All right? <laughs> he, it, <laughs> okay. Point, Eric. All right. You win. All right. I'll give you that one. I'm, I'm not, I can't even argue that anymore, but it just seems so simplistic that, that this was not always the plan. If this was always the plan, I can almost buy it because you've established the Brit. Who, who, who said it was always the plan. It was a fix based on day of, That's, because as you would say, he didn't have a fucking can. That's why there was a change. That's why there was a change in the finish. It, it's, it wasn't the plan all along. We made chicken salad out of what we thought was less than, than chicken salad. That doesn't work for me, brother. Well, live with it. I'm just saying, Hey, listen, this has been a fun episode for me. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about this one for a long time. Uh, Clearly. I, I still think you're full of shit, but that's okay. We can still be friends. Hopefully Eric and I will still be on speaking terms next week. When we talk about the moronic fucking decision to beat Goldberg at Starcade 1998. 
if you think this week was bad wait till we hit a fucking iceberg next week right here on 83 weeks with eric bischoff john brings his skewed sense of humor jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.